0: B20 Radio, your game is wrong. www.b20radio.com Nation, and welcome to the 4 J Genesis RPG podcast, covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and of course, the Genesis role-playing game itself. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and here we are again, breaking our rule of once a month episode, which I'm quickly finding might be an error on our website. <laughs> mainly because there is so much stuff coming out for the Foundry (laughs) and general hype about Genesis. But most likely the reason I love coming on this podcast and talking about Genesis is because I can come and talk about it with this guy, GM Chris. How's it going?
1: (laughs) What is up, Gamer Nation? Um, It's going good, man. Awesome. Uh, uh, Yeah, overall, I'm uh, uh, I'm just... Ah, uh, I, I can't talk about it now, but we're working on new things for the Foundry, and I'm so freaking excited. Um, should start playtesting fairly quickly, actually, um, which is going to matter uh, for the show topic we're going to be discussing later on Absolutely. with our special guest.
0: Yeah, you might have to um, get your little notepad out there and start taking a few notes as we go. I know, I know.
1: Oh, but uh, but th- th- there's a lot to discuss. And Huli, you, you mentioned there's a lot coming out. So should we we just get on to talking
0: about that? I think we better. Um, as we could basically banner on like this for hours. So let's start it off with our new section we like to call Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry, and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week?
1: Absolutely, because this episode, we're going to highlight a brand new show that recently joined the D20 Radio podcast network, The Shared Sagas Podcast. Oh, yeah. This (laughs) is an... I know. (laughs) This is an actual play podcast, an actual play RPG podcast. It's crewed by a fantastic group of Aussies. Um... You guys are killing me. Uh, (laughs) uh, But seriously, they're they're fun. They're funny. They're a riot to listen to um, and and apparently have been fans of the D20 radio network for quite some time Mm. um, uh, and, and, and many of our shows. Um, they, they're they a hilarious group. They do actual plays of one-shots and in ongoing campaigns. Right now, they are in the midst of a 5th edition D&D campaign run-through of Waterdeep Dragon Heist, the mm. classic D&D tale. Yeah. Um, it's a really great show. It's funny, it's well-produced, and, and we are proud to welcome it to the network. So go, go, go just go, go check it out. And, and you can find it and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com.
0: Indeed. And Australians apparently taking over the entertainment industry. But, <laughs> but I digress. Um, and now for... <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, and now to some Genesis Foundry news. Uh, the past couple of weeks have seen a couple of new things published and available on the Foundry. Uh, first of all, is a new micro-offering from Chris Hunt. Um, that guy's just a machine. Um, second to Keith Cappell, I think. Um, creator of both the Power of Vril adventure and Armour of the Vril uh, supplement. Crooks and Contacts, number one, which means there'll be more. Uh, Marcus Windham Runner. Uh, he is the first in what looks like to be a series of ready-made and fully fleshed out NPC profiles. Now, this one is for Android and is four pages of detailed backstory personality profile, full stat blocks, favours, and even a new talent. Very, very cool stuff. I loved the way that um, he's added in uh, the background with favours and uh, you know what, what some of the favours might be if you were using that character um, or you're encountering that character and things like that. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I love the way that uh, he's put in the motivations as well. Uh, for that character, so uh, very, very cool, and it's only ninety nine cents, less than a buck, well worth your while.
1: That it is, and then also uh, just in the past week, we've had a brand new setting uh, from uh, author Peter Holland, uh, Fame Factor, a Genesis fantasy setting. I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of this when I saw it because it is admittedly by the author. Not a beautiful book, but one that will give you hours of fun. it's um, it's it, it, it's very simple. There is almost no graphic design or layout at all. It is, having said that, hundred and forty four pages
2: mm. of,
1: of fully fleshed out fantasy setting. Mm. Um, I, I've only started to crack it. it it's it's filled with original fiction. Uh, world building, NPCs and groups, six new species archetypes, and and all the things you would expect in a a setting rulebook. Hmm. Um, you know, m- much much more in in a, in a fantasy world that is kind of intriguing to me. It 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 works like our world apparently, where the heroes are simply those with the best PR. Um, and and the, the constant quest is to be rich, powerful, and well-known as an all-pervasive and driving goal. It's interesting. Ooh. And as I said, I'm only just starting to dig into it. But honestly, that's easy to do, Yeah. Because do you know what it costs?
0: What does it cost, Chris?
1: Whatever you want to pay for it. Nice! <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's a pay-what-you-want product, so you can throw a buck at it or more if you'd like to. Um Additionally, a lot of people don't know this uh, with Drive-Thru RPG. If you buy a product that is uh, pay-what-you-want, you can actually choose to pay $0 for it. Mm-hmm. And and that, and that is something the author has agreed to, obviously. Mm-hmm. You can go back and retroactively change that at any time. I actually love this about the pay-what-you-want model. If you get something, you're like, I don't know, and you, you pay you know a buck or, or less for it mm-hmm. um, or $0 for it, you could read it and go, wow, that is a $5 supplement. Or right. that is a ten dollar supplement. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, are, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna change my purchase price. And, and Drive RPG will actually let you do that right. and sort of retroactively pay the creator for their work.
0: It, it's kind of interesting. That is very, very cool indeed. Yeah. Um, now we also saw the update of a form fillable, a form fillable. I'll put my tongue back in form fillable character sheet uh, for Starkana which we reviewed uh, with Studio 404, uh, Phil and Kimber, in our last episode. Um, and it's also a pay what you want. Um, we also saw the addition of a Hope Prep pre-gen character six-pack for just a simple 2 dollars More and more stuff is coming out for, for the Foundry as we speak. So if you are in the middle of planning your release of your product on the Foundry, let us know. We want to know what's coming out, um, and um, because we'd love to give you a plug on the podcast. So you can learn more about what's going on um, and what's on offer at the Genesis Foundry via the Fantasy Flight Games website at fantasyflightgames.com, or you can just head straight to drive throughrpg.com.
1: Indeed. All right. Before we get to the main topic of tonight's show, mm. let us hear a special segment that we call Die casting. die casting so the forge podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table and the genesis rpg provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so specifically through skills and talents the die casting segment is about closely examining individual skills and individual talents and how they relate to the creations you craft last episode we discussed the now infamous talent of knack for it mm-hmm. but tonight we're going back to discussing skills.
0: Indeed. And this is a topic I've been closely involved in when uh, we were doing Night's Edge. Uh, and I know, Chris, that you've been um, heavily involved with this with both Familiar, when you did your Harry Potter um, setting, and also mm-hmm. um, your upcoming Aegis as well. That's correct. Now, it's a skill which sets the tone of your setting. Um, it does it like no other. It helps shape your world including uh, indicating to the players what is important and how everything relates to each other. I am, of course, talking about that wonderful nugget we call the knowledge skill.
1: Yes. Now, this uh, suggestion of going over the knowledge skill was a topic that was actually suggested, credit where it's due, by Will Kelly, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Dr. Omicron on Twitter. Yep. Um, and this this is an excellent topic because the core knowledge skill stands apart from anything else in the game in it's clearly expressed design to be broken down, modified, and molded to be different in your game. Hmm. Um, but what does that look like? Uh, how, how do you best go about doing it while avoiding common problems and bad choices?
0: That's right. Now, what we're going to do, um, do through this process um, is, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about knowledge and what it means for your players. Uh, GMS and obviously content writers.
1: So let's let's start with the basics of the skill, man. I mean, co- core foundation. Uh, mm. Where can where can players find it? What's the skill we're talking about here?
0: So basically, the the knowledge skill is found on page sixty six, um, strangely enough, of the Genesis Core Rulebook. Uh, for those following on at home, now knowledge in terms of the core skill it covers basically knowing things. Now that's anything. Everything, <laughs> there's nothing that this doesn't cover, um, from physics to biology, um, quantum mechanics uh, to art, history, and philosophy. But this is your intellectual grasp of a topic, not necessarily the practice of it.
1: Yes. And I think this is a key differentiator here, because mm. the, the, one of the core things you've got to understand about the knowledge skill is the difference in this game between understanding and practicing. Mm. Um, you know, and this is really what differentiates knowledge versus other skills. Mm. Knowing is not doing and yeah. vice versa. Mm. Um, you know, knowledge is understanding how an engine works, not the capability to actually rebuild one, which would be the mechanic skill. <laughs>
0: <Yep>. <laughs> exactly. Now, intellect is always the associated characteristic for knowledge. Always. Because yeah. it kind of makes sense. <laughs> uh, because uh, knowledge is going to be all about, you know, your academics, um, recollections, and logic. Um, it's always, always, always tied to intellect. You can't escape it. Um, and this is going to be important when we talk about breaking it up, and uh, you'll see that as we progress through this topic.
1: Well, Okay, now, this is where it gets weird and, and why this is a really interesting topic for die casting because, Huli, mm. this is a skill that is designed to not be used <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the knowledge skill itself.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which is really weird, but um, you know we'll, we'll sort of break that down. Um, and the knowledge skill is called out in the core rulebook. Yes, the description of that skill advises that it covers the knowledge of pretty much everything. But sure. the same section advises us, that the intent of the game is for each setting to have unique knowledge skills that apply to a specific setting, whether it be a sci-fi, whether it be uh, a noir setting or something like that. It's going to be very much tied to the overall look and feel. So when you do this, you're supposed to get rid of a single all-encompassing knowledge skill that's presented in the core rulebook. Um, And it's actually called out verbatim. In the additional knowledge skill sidebar, God love sidebars, Um, on page 67 of the core rulebook. In other words, the general knowledge skill uh, outlines when it is used, how it is used, and how it is not used. Now, those things, which are all presented on page 66 and 67, should be there for every custom knowledge skill you add for your setting, so um you know if you look at Terranoth if you look at uh, Android you will see that um it has the skill section and each of those break down in a very similar fashion as you see all the other skills in in the core rulebook but it's very very specific to what is covered by that skill in that setting
1: Yes there, there are core principles in terms of how knowledge is used, what it's used for, and what it's not used for. That are there in the core rulebook, okay? Mm-hmm. And and those sections specifically are going to apply. Those generic uses and non uses are going to apply to any custom knowledge skill you create.
0: That's but
1: right. as you said, as you said, Huli, the the difference, what changes, is that custom knowledge skills. Get, go deeper. They represent specific areas of knowledge that are unique to that setting. And as you said, the, it, this is a skill that's designed not to be used. The, the intent is that you're going to create custom knowledge skills for your setting, and the game tells you, okay, when you do that, don't use the general knowledge skill.
0: That's mm. <laughs> right. Try.
1: Get rid of it. Um, you know, it's, 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 as you said, it's verbatim. It's there in the book. It tells you to do this. Mm. So it's, it's, it's kind of an odd duck. It Um, is,
0: and especially when you start going into things like magic, which we'll talk about in a tick. But when it comes to magic, it actually refers to your ranks in a knowledge skill, which can affect damage and things like that. That's mm -hmm. something that you've got to really take into consideration because if you don't touch base on that when you're talking about your unique setting as to what knowledge skill covers – Your players and and GMs are going to get confused. So you've got to make sure that you cover off on that as well, if magic is even part of your setting. So when talking about making new knowledge skills, so now that we understand what the intent is to literally replace the all-encompassing knowledge skill with several specific skills, um, several specific knowledge skills, unique to your setting, how do we best do that? What are the guidelines and tips that we need to follow?
1: So we're going to go over, for you listeners, a three-step process that we, Julie and I, find to, be, find to be the best way to round out your setting's knowledge skills when you are creating something fresh.
2: Mm.
1: Additionally, we're going to have some fun here and we'll see <laughs> how it goes as we go through this. Yep. Uh, you're, you're, the two of us are going to pick a brand new setting, and we are going to develop its knowledge skills live <laughs> on the air right now. We have no show notes on that. We literally have nothing <laughs> documented. We're going to do it entirely by the seat of our pants. Are you ready for that, Huli?
0: I am not ready for that, but <laughs> of course I'm ready for it.
1: <laughs> okay, so before we get into the steps of the process, yep. let's 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 set that frame. Let's pick our setting. All right. right. Now, I, 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 dude, I'll, I'll rely on you. Give, give me, and dude, this isn't anything we're going to publish. This can actually be a licensed IP that somebody else has. Give mm. me a setting that does not exist for Genesis today that we want to do this for.
0: All right. So I'm thinking a noir setting. I, I love anything sort of in that noir look and feel. Oh, Ooh, okay. Okay. So, so we're, but, Um, But I I also love the the supernatural side of things. So I'm thinking like supernatural by gaslight. That's what I'm going to go for.
1: Uh, Oh, God, there's actually a setting I'm working on uh, that is literally called uh, gaslight and moonlight. Nice. Uh, (laughs) uh, Okay. Uh, so supernatural by gaslight. So okay, that's our setting. So we're talking, you know, nineteen twenties, thirties, early forties. You know, you know, dark noir. Uh, you know, thirties era kind of, and oh. and and you know. We're, but but we need to have a strong supernatural element as well. Okay, oh. uh, mm-hmm. so we're talking, we're talking, you know, you know, ghosts, the occult, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have our setting. So let's. With that in mind, get into the process. Let's do this. What is step one of the process?
0: All right. So step one is be setting specific. Now, this is perhaps the simplest part of the process. Um, As as a setting creator, you should be defining what areas of knowledge are the most suited to your setting. Is it fantasy? Is it sci-fi? Is it space opera? Is it a more modern setting? Uh, a good exercise to consider is this. In your setting world, if there were courses offered at school or in university or something like that, what would they be offered on? Now, based on this, come up with you come up with a list of several subjects and it goes without saying, be sure these areas of knowledge actually fit in with the setting. For example, in our Noir setting, we wouldn't have something to do with astrocartography. Because <laughs> computer, <we're not> use. <laughs> computer use. Computer use. Because we're not really doing those things and it's it's just not gonna make a lot of sense. So it really yes. has to be tied specifically to your setting.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay, so so let's let's do this and let's let's get a let's get a good serious list out there. I'm thinking I'm thinking Noir, I'm thinking Sam Spade. I'm thinking detectives, so mm-hmm. I'm thinking. I'm thinking immediately, uh, 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 probably uh, uh, law, mm-hmm. uh, or, 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 or better yet, crime. I'll just make it crime. Yep. All right, I think that's a knowledge skill is crime. Mm.
0: Um, and I think um, we, and we also have to look at underworld because we're we're dealing with the the shady side of of society as well. Absolutely, so, you absolutely. know something like underworld or. Criminal syndicates or something like that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, also, you know, I think about the, the kind of things that, that heroes are going to do in this world. Um, they're going to be they're going to be navigating around. Um, I, I think um, uh, you know they're they're going to be uh, chasing down leads. They're going to have a lot of contacts. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think knowledge of for the time being, I'm going to I'm going to call it I'm going to call it society. All right, mm. you know who who to know mm. in the world. Yep. Um I, I think I think absolutely matters. Mm-hmm. Um what else? What other what other areas of knowledge could exist? I mean I mean bl- blow through in, in, in our settings specific.
0: Alright, so we've also got um the supernatural side of things. So I think that we need to look at I'm thinking two of them. One would be uh the occult, um which uh you know might be dealing specifically with cult members um some of their practices and things like that um but we also might be uh looking at supernatural as an actual skill so we're looking at the things which go bump in the night uh and Mm -hmm. things like that so that's that's two sort of skills that i think would be useful
1: Two, two good areas of knowledge. All right Ooh. now, now those are obviously very setting specific. Now little, we can go even broader than that. There's basic things. You know, if if this is a uh, far our noir setting, if supernatural by Gaslight is is taking place in our world, just just happens to have a supernatural element associated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that happen in the period of the 30s. We have uh, we have a recent Great War. Okay, Ooh. and you know a, a new one that's about to start. Um, or depending on when you are already has started, so things like history, um, I think, is going to be a, a valid knowledge point. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, uh, also, quite frankly, warfare, mm. um, uh, which you know comes back to you know my military contacts and things, things of that nature.
0: Mm. Um, what else? We could also look at uh, because you know um, uh, the rise of the big business is basically happening during this time as well. That business might be um, a, a skill which may be relevant to some characters if they're they're looking outside of of that sort of realm um and maybe some library use as well
1: ah uh, so academ- uh, so so what we have is bu- i got business and mm-hmm. then i have um i have i'll call it academia
0: yep sounds good to me right. uh ac- academia
1: so we we have we have that going on um and we could keep going and keep lining out all the various things. Uh, you yeah. know, we have we have things like, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, other things. You we're know, we're we're in we're in the uh, real heavy duty of the industrial revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe maybe I have something like um, uh, engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which is knowledge of, of engineering and we can keep going, but honestly, I think we have a good starting list here. We have, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 potential knowledge skills that we're going to have in our setting. Um, and they are specifically crime, underworld, society, occult, supernatural, history, warfare, business, academia, and engineering. Mm. Now, um, this is, this is a good preliminary list. Mm. Um, but this does actually lead us to
0: step two. Which is basically going to be PC specific. And what we mean by that, um, because it does get tricky, this step is about uh, grooming the list that we've created. And you might have up to 20 different areas which you might think that are going to be um, you know, relevant to your setting. But you've got to pare it down and you've got to refine it. Now, an example, um, sorry, to, to examine basically um, uh, this list of potential knowledge skills, um, you have to ask the key questions of what matters to my PC in my game? Not to an NPC, but what do your player characters, what will, uh, what will they want to do and need to do um, in, to take ranks in this particular skill?
1: mm-hmm yeah and and this is where and, and there's there's two avenues to this when you think about sh- shaving this list down in terms of what plays to your pcs hmm. first is pare things down and cut them I mean okay uh, it's fantastic that we have basket weaving history as a knowledge topic
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: but our pcs will never ever ever need to take a rank in that so why have it cut hmm. it and look, mm. even that's hyperbolic, but even the non-silly things might be totally out valid areas of study in your universe, but if it's not an area of knowledge the PCs are ever likely going to need in the game or ever to want to take a rank in, mm. don't waste the space on it.
0: Mm. Cut it. Mm. So you've got to focus on your setting concepts. Be sure to include knowledge options that matter for unique setting concepts and use knowledge to, to basically to highlight them. Is magic a huge part of your setting? As we mentioned before, something many PCs will ponder, um, something that is is the core trope of your world. This is where you should consider an appropriate knowledge skill. Um, Is an alien invasion um, core to the theme of your setting? Be sure you have knowledge that specifically covers understanding aliens, whether it be xenobiology or something like that.
1: Absolutely. The ter-
0: yeah, the Terranoth setting for um, specifically uh, has a knowledge skill which is forbidden. Now it's a specific generic area of key conflict, um, but it's also a plot movement in Terranoth. You yeah. need that skill to be able to understand how the the undead work and things yeah. like that. And there's actual talents that that apply specifically. That you can use one skill, namely forbidden, instead of uh, the other one. What's the other one, Chris? What's the other one called? I think it's lore or something. Oh, like uh, that.
1: in, in Terranoth, Tar- it's lore. Mm. Yeah, and, and lore. this is a this is a, a really good example because if you read what lore is in Terranoth, it covers history and legends and actually also magic. Mm. But because the quote unquote forbidden magics are such a huge trope in Terranoth they chose to leave a specific knowledge skill out for that and that's why this is the point you have that one knowledge skill that really highlights a key theme of Terranoth for the players yep so these two these two avenues paring things down and cutting them because they don't matter to your PCs mm. but also using your knowledge skill list And ensuring that you have things that not just matter, but are intrinsic to focusing on those setting concepts are really what step two is about. Mm -hmm. So step one, one, you come up with a huge list of knowledge skills that apply in your world and matter in the setting. Mm -hmm. This step is just about making sure that things matter to your PCs through those two means. Pairing things down and cutting them and then focusing on setting concepts. Mm -hmm. So Huli, we we have our list here Mm -hmm. (laughs) of of 10 (laughs) skills. Um, yep. let's do a little bit of paring down. Um, now, we are we're gonna we, we have a step three. It's going to get it even more consolidated and, yep. and give us our final product. But Ooh. based on what what we've got here, crime, underworld, society, occult, supernatural, history, warfare, business, academia, and engineering, are any of these things, first of all, that we just need to cut? Are there any of these that that's, that's a, a PC is just flat out not going to be interested in or at the very least, aren't going to matter in the adventures that are going to be run in this world to any meaningful degree.
0: Mm. Look, I'm thinking just two off the top of my head, um, and that's business. I'm thinking that probably is something that can, can be combined later on um, under uh, academia. Um, and engineering is kind of, even though that it, I mean, it is a, a knowledge skill when we start talking about mechanics, yeah, but but
1: who, but who cares? Are the PCs really going to use it in our noir by gaslight?
0: That's right. Probably not. Probably um, not. So I'm yeah.
1: I'm going to do that now. I'm going to I'm just going to cut engineering straight out, and I'm going to cut business straight out. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, um, adi- you know, uh, and and that's that's really what it's going to come down to. Now, I do think that uh, when we talk about the others, I, I do think they they may potentially matter. And we may combine them, but that that's really going to come into our third step. Absolutely. so for right now um i, I've, I we, we've cut two skills out, so we're down to eight, and we know that at the very least based on the themes of the setting, you know, I see underworld and probably like occult as being things that are absolute primacy for knowledge because they really do matter for the setting concepts yeah. they they let my players know what this setting is really about. Mm,
2: exactly. um, <clears throat>
1: So I love that. But that, that leads us into step three. Mm. Uh, and so talk to me about step three. What is our last step? Once we've gone through that first paring down phase and made things PC
0: specific, what's next? Exactly. So step three is avoid the bloat. Now, you're, you've you got a knowledge topic list smaller than before. Basically, you're, you're going to go from your 20 items, and you should be looking at at least half of that. Uh, so that's kind of the aim of the exercise. Get to half of what you are. We haven't actually done that in this circumstance. But that's really well, what you should be looking at. Well, I mean, we started with 10. So, um, and you've got to make sure that it's setting specific. And are things that will matter to the PCs. So, but you're not done. The last step is about cutting and combining those skills even more to avoid skill bloat. What there What are, is the bloat? All right, so there's so many skills already um, in, uh, in Genesis. Um, when you start looking at it, if you go back to our first episode where we talked about uh, our melee and, uh, and ranged, depending mm-hmm. on your setting, you've got you know multiples of those sorts of skills, plus you've got all the general skills, and you've got your social skills. So you've got a large selection already, and the bloat means that you're covering the same area with separate skills. And that means that you're going to have PCs that are going to have to buy... Actually, it's going to create two potential problems for you. The first point is you're going to have PCs that have got to spend XP to cover all of the areas that they think that they're going to need. The other Mm. thing as well that you wanted to try to avoid is that at the table, so when people are playing in your setting you don't want to have massive discussions about what skill covers what. So you want to try to bring that down as much as you possibly can to avoid that bloat. Um, but, yeah, sadly a lot of systems suffer from it. Um, they do. And uh, way too many skills. But if you look at, um, you know, FFG's published uh, Genesis settings so far, we've got Terranoth and Android, uh, you'll notice that they only have three or four skill uh, knowledge skills in each of those, and that's it. And that should be your goal as well. Now, just as a passing thought, because I'm sure that people have um, not just touched on Genesis, uh, but they've also, you know, swayed over to taking a look at where it all began with Star Wars. And it has seven different knowledge skills. Mm -hmm. And this, to be honest with you, that's a problem. But it's a big damn galaxy, as they say. (laughs) <laughs> um, now, we, we don't have an official answer from FFG as to why they've decided to go there. But let's just look at it logically for a tick. Star Wars, as I said, the Star Wars galaxy is huge. Xenobiology, for example, covers literally trillions of species. And it's all about going out and adventuring in, in the deep darkness of space. Where, there, where you're going to be encountering heaps and heaps of these sort of species... It's hard to sort of just bring all of that into something like with, um, uh, with Android where there's society that will cover things like cultures and things like that. But you're only talking about one world there. We're talking about a massive galaxy.
3: Yeah. Um,
0: but having said that, you know, you've, yeah. you've got the likes of Starkana where they yeah. have kept that, uh, that list small. And, and ultimately, it's whatever you want to do with your setting. Um, But just from our feedback, and we've played this game for quite a while now, that that many skills can create problems that you might want to avoid.
1: I want to talk about this specifically because, look, I, I and I, Huli, you too, I know this, I love the Star Wars RPG from mm-hmm. Fantasy Flight, okay? Mm-hmm. But let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> the same designers... Who refined this system over years are the same people who created Genesis yeah. based off of that. Do you honestly think they didn't take lessons learned and improvements to be made and really got, quote unquote, I hate to say it, the best version of the narrative dice mechanics mm-hmm. into Genesis compared to Star Wars? I yep. mean, you and I both know there are Star Wars players that are already taking Genesis mechanics and using them in their FFG Star Wars game, Starship Combat, being a primary example. Absolutely. Okay? Because they're just better. Mm. They're cleaner. So with that simple fact in mind, realize the fact that the two right now published settings we have for Genesis from Fantasy Flight only have three or four knowledge skills. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Turn off. has four Android. A a science fiction futuristic setting only has three. <laughs> right? Um, yep. That should tell you how tacitly how the designers feel about the number of knowledge skills you should have. Mm. And I, I didn't tell. I, uh, one of the more memorable characters. I because you know with when, I, I usually GM right. Right. And I I, I relish the chance to play. Um, I, we ran a very short campaign where I actually made an analyst. Are you familiar with that career in Star Wars? I am indeed. That specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I made an analyst, which is all you're. You're a knowledge monkey. That's what you are. And let me tell you, seven knowledge skills was a complete pain in the keister.
2: <laughs>
1: um, it was tough. I, I didn't enjoy that. Hmm. So keep it, keep it low, keep it to three or four, and you you can do that in this step of avoiding the blow, let's talk, let's talk about how you can do that. There are two key ways that you can do it. we're gonna talk about one of them first, Mm -hmm. which is cast off the knowledge covered by another skill. What do I mean? Often in this game, A specific area of knowledge can be handled by a related skill already, especially when that skill's characteristic is already tied to intellect, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, you don't want to do this all the time, and I'll I'll talk about that. But to give you some examples, uh, let's say you've got a a knowledge skill for designing starship engines. Yeah. Cut it. Let mechanics be used for that. Mm -hmm. Say you've got a skill for researching and reading star charts. Cut it. Use astrocartography. You got a skill for designing calculation algorithms and wetware. Cut it. (laughs) Use computers. Hmm. Now, a word of caution for Hmm. this this method of casting off knowledge covered by another skill. Be careful here, okay? Hmm. This type of usage transition should not be your first resort, all right? It should really only be done when the knowledge area is Fairly uncommon, so uncommon even that you don't even mind if it transitions to a non intellectual skill. For example, maybe I have a knowledge skill for um, herbology. Okay. I can do that or I can just use survival. Okay. (laughs) Um, I understand it's not intellect based, but it's such a narrow field of knowledge and it might matter in your world and it might even matter to some PCs, but just, you know, you can just use survival. All right. Um, so honestly, you should really only use this method when the knowledge area is fairly uncommon, um, because as we said at the start of this discussion, there should be a hard line between understanding versus practice. All right. Yeah. If a p and, and here's here's the barometer. If a PC in your setting might reasonably have an aptitude in something without an understanding of it academically then you should lean towards keeping the physical skill and the knowledge skill separate. Yeah. All right. If if the if, if if that understanding is a unique thing that is separate and matters to the PCs in your game and your setting. If mm. I if I have a setting about starship aces, all right. Mm. And Starship engine design, from an academic standpoint, really matters. I might not want to break that up because there's amazing mechanics that can fix an engine lickety-split but cannot design one. And mm-hmm. then you've got engineers in the lab who are designing perfect cars, but they've never gotten their hands dirty with grease. Okay? <laughs> they're, they're very different things.
0: Yep. So. Absolutely. Anyway,
1: yeah. so, so that's method one uh, to, to o- avoid the bloat is to cast off knowledge covered by the skills. But again, it's not the first resort. What is the first resort, Huli?
0: <laughs> so, so the first resort is basically combine, combine, combine until you get to your smallest list possible. Uh, now, as I said, uh, that should be the first resort. And, and where you should focus most your effort in this third step, honestly. Um, uh, one of the reasons why I, I found it a little bit difficult to to get into that that list is because you start to, when you've done enough of it, yeah. you start to do it automatically. You know, you know, those two things need to be combined or whatever else. So, you know, it, 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 when, if you've never ever touched the system before, or this is the first time that you're, you're doing uh, a setting based in this realm, it's probably going to, this is still an important process to, to step through. So, um, but do whatever you can to reasonably combine your varied, knowledge knowledge topics until you've got three or four that really matter now this uh, is where broad semi-specific areas of study work really really well uh, but there's a fine line between combining too much while still keeping areas of study separate now Chris mentioned it before um, but a good rule of thumb is to think in terms of PC careers what would you uh, what would your combined skill? be optimised by the knowledge of only one or two careers in the setting. So, you know, architect, ship design, structural mathematics, b- bring those all together and put them under engineering. Um, mm-hmm. Engineering, particle physics, um, stuff like uh, quantum mechanics, we mentioned before, and neuro neurobiology, you might be combining that all under science, for example. Yeah. Um. From a fantasy realm, you might be looking at dungeoneering, monster identification, um, just as a, a, a random skill that popped into my head. Um, solving ancient puzzles um, becomes adventuring, which is what they've done in Terranoth, um, yes. where your magic knowledge, um, things like history, your legends, uh, religion, um, and even sort of like folk tales can all become combined into the one thing, which is lore. Now, just a word of warning, though, be sure your combinations don't erase a unique setting concept skill. Um,
1: So like in Terranoth, you know, they have lore, but they still kept, you know, uh, specifically forbidden as a separate skill, even though on face you could combine that into lore, but it would erase that setting specific trope that they really want to represent in the knowledge skill.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Okay, so cast off knowledge covered by another skill and then combine, combine, combine. Let's mm. do this now. So we paired our list of 10, which, you know, if we'd really spent some time on it, we probably could have gotten to 20, which we would have <laughs> paired down to eight or so. But we got yep. it paired down to eight, okay? Yep. We got crime, underworld, society, occult, supernatural, history, warfare, and academia. Well, yep. right away, Huli, I'm going to say crime and understanding the, the aspects of, of how crime occurs, as I'm a detective, but also understanding the underworld and who conducts crime, that should really be one skill, right? Absolutely. That's one area of knowledge. So Amelia, I'm going to combine that into, what, underworld? Just keep mm-hmm. it all into underworld?
0: Absolutely. There's okay. somebody to take into consideration there, and this is something also that people may find when they're paring down their skill list is that one skill that you've suggested can actually break into two. And I think in this circumstance, you're hundred percent right with the underworld, but also when it comes to the law as in LAW of how crime happens and um, you know, what constitutes crime and things like that could actually come under academia as well.
1: It absolutely could. It absolutely could. Um, And, you know, this is another thing, too. I, you know, when, when I look at, you know, we we were able to combine, uh, you know, crime and underworld into just underworld. I, I think about academia. Um, we could probably combine that with history, too.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, really, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, do we want to call it academia or do we want to come up with a new label really just to cover, you know, Basically, things you would research in a public library.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we might call it research.
1: Uh, I love it. So knowledge, research.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Okay, so we have research, and we'll, we'll, we'll combine uh, history and academia into that. Okay, mm-hmm. so now we're down to six. This is still at least two too many.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What about occult and supernatural?
0: Colton Supernatural, yeah, look, um, I'm thinking that the two of them should be combined uh, Mm -hmm. because they they do cover the same sort of things. And if you're worried about that these things are going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be areas that are certainly covered uh, by one, um, but they're not going to be covered by the other, and you're worried about combining them, the thing to to take into consideration when – Writing up your your setting, or if you 're running a game like this, is to look at whether that pc has experience in that sort of area, so if they 've never touched the occult in their backstory but they 've you know had uh, you know that they 're really into the supernatural and, and things like that without actually going into doing rites and rituals and things like that when he's setting difficulties there's nothing wrong with saying well you weren't necessarily involved in that have a couple of setback die and that can sort of split up the difference if you're really concerned and that's more talking about running the game but Absolutely. um but yeah that's that's something that you can take into consideration when if you are really concerned about combining those so um so yeah
1: Absolutely. Now, when we lined out occult and supernatural, it was also one of the dividers was cult was about the people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, these, these kind of practitioners, whereas the supernatural is about the phenomenon itself. When you're combining skills like this, and you're thinking about a knowledge skill, especially as you, as you look at other good examples that are out there in published works, a good knowledge skill often encompasses both. So yep. you don't necessarily really need to break it out. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, So you want to combine occult and supernatural into what? Just occult? I just love the word occult.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good to me. All
1: right. So we have underworld, society, occult, research, and warfare. We got still at least one too many. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and uh, the more I'm thinking about this, Huli, warfare is important. Mm -hmm. But I think about, you know... What what are the aspects of warfare that somebody might need to know, especially if this is a, a a setting that's really focused around the Great War or or perhaps the coming World War II? Um, you know, y- you're gonna want to know about maybe history, but in which case that's already covered by research, mm. all right. So mm-hmm. a lot of warfare rolls into research. But the other thing too is I may want to know about people. Uh, especially a, a common trope in in noir stories are you know yeah I served with this guy during the war, right? Yep. And yep. so you, you you have these contacts, all right. Mm. And honestly, a lot of that is broken up into underworld and society as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think we could probably just cut warfare straight out and yep. merge it into the skills we already have of research, society, and and underworld. Absolutely. And I want to go one further on this. I want to take a look at society because now that we're really talking through this and I'm thinking about these detective noir movies that I love watching so much. Mm-hmm. These guys always have two levels of contacts Mm -hmm. because contacts is really what it's about, right? Mm -hmm. They have their seedy contacts in the underworld, but they also tend to have what I would call high society contacts as well, Mm -hmm. whether that be a senator or a politician, okay, or – you know somebody they 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 were in the war with, or a, a big <laughs> industrialist, right? Somebody yeah. who owes them a favor, or they owe a favor to, mm. um, who's going to call them? Mm-hmm. So I'm almost thinking that the second knowledge skill of of society really juxtaposes between uh, what's different from underworld. I almost want to call it high society. Sure. So at that point, we have four knowledge skills. We have mm-hmm. Underworld, which that we obviously know what that deals with.
0: Mm-hmm. We have
1: High Society, which is actually the same skill, but for an entirely different group of people and problems. Yep. And two of which are I – and mean, these are obviously going to be important for PCs, but they're also very setting-specific to a noir detective setting. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have Occult, which is obviously a huge setting-specific theme. In our supernatural by Gaslight, and then we really have a generic skill of research, which covers like everything else, anything yep. scientific or historical in nature that I might need to
0: know. Mm. Absolutely, and so I think that's a really good list.
1: There we go. So you know, in, in the interest of a podcast time, you know, we started with ten skills, but if we'd really kept going, Huli, we could have gotten to twenty or thirty yeah, if we really or. tried. <laughs> Um, And we've pared that down to just four, four that matter. Um, And this really comes down to the conclusion of this particular segment. Knowledge, skills, Gamer Nation are critical, not just to game balance, but to serve as a way to really define much of the themes of your own setting for your players and for yourself. Pretty much. So use knowledge, skills to highlight the key themes in your setting and follow the process
0: What's the process again? What are the steps? So we've got step one, which you have to be setting specific. Go through the list. Create this huge list of things that you think would be covered by your setting. Then step two, which is be PC specific. So start to break down that list. At least cut that list in half so that you can really look at what the PCs would be invested in if they're playing in this particular setting. And step three, which is to avoid the bloat. So you need to start to really pare that down right to three to four skills, which are going to cover everything that suits your setting, but still the terminology that you're using is still going to be – it's going to cover what your setting is all about.
1: Absolutely. And when it's all set and done – you've got a well-groomed list of knowledge options that are going to matter to your players
0: and serve you well when you're running your games. Indeed. So that was a really good discussion, I think. And, and hopefully those uh, those tips and points that we've given you will really help you develop your knowledge skill for your particular setting that you're working on. The other thing to take into consideration as well is that sometimes your setting, because, um, you know, when it comes to these sorts of things, it never survives uh, contact with the players, (laughs) is that you will find that sometimes the campaign goes off in a direction that you're not expecting or that when you're sitting down to play in your, your, your setting or setting that you've purchased, that some people as the group may want to do something differently. There is nothing stopping you creating your own skills for existing settings or for your own that can tack on it's not as though that the people are going to uh, you know you're not going to have um gm phil knock on your door and saying you're playing sarcana but you're not supposed to have that particular skill that's not going to happen well it might <laughs> and that'd be really cool but no that won't actually happen so yeah keep that in mind that you can actually add skills
1: absolutely as time goes by absolutely mm. So, big thank you to Will Kelly, aka Doctor Omicron, for the suggestion. Um, and uh, if you guys have suggestions um, for uh, <laughs> uh, for this uh, particular die casting segment, if you have any skills um, or talents that you'd like us to specifically go over, um, of course, please reach out to us and and do let us know. Um, you can of course uh, drop us a line um, on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at Forge Genesis uh, You can also email us um, Forge Genesis at d20radio.com Or you can also tweet us At mm. Forge Genesis
0: Indeed Well I think that's pretty much covered um, Knowledge um, But we probably should get on to um, A bit of a segment We like to call The Furnace mm-hmm. The Furnace and welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis Roleplay game. Now, they say that rule number one in developing games is to playtest, playtest, playtest. And this is never more important than when creating things for a role-playing game. New skills, new talents, and new ways to make your setting unique through special rules that add flavor to your setting. Or perhaps more commonly, ensuring that a published adventure or module you create is fair, balanced, easy to run, and fun to play. Indeed.
1: Now, one of the most important things to discuss when creating your own setting is, to, is how to make what you have written balanced. Now, to be clear, this isn't about editing and proofreading. Those are topics, gamernation, that we will discuss <laughs> in future episodes. But playtesting specifically, as Huli said playtesting is this art and this science of putting your newly cast armor or weapon into combat before the war actually begins. And it's what we are going to talk about tonight. Now, both Hooli and myself do have a fair bit of experience playtesting material for both Wizards of the Coast and Fantasy Flight Games. But the majority of our playtesting has been for fun, Mm. apart from the content that we've created for the Foundry. So, instead of just hearing us talk about it, we thought it might behoove us to bring on a (laughs) professional who understands in a professional way, the ins and outs of this process.
0: (laughs) And to that end, we are proud to welcome a special guest with us tonight in her first appearance on a podcast, developer for Fantasy Flight Games and, can I say, an amazing person to work for. Yes, she was my boss on uh, two or three projects. I think it was two. (laughs) Uh, Alexis uh, Dokima. Alexis, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Awesome. And sorry if I butchered your name then.
3: <laughs> it's all right. It's Daikama.
0: Oh, really? Daikama. Everyone
3: like it's- gets it wrong. It's okay.
0: <laughs> you can blame me because well- I'm an Australian. That's fine. <laughs> we pronounce everything weird.
1: The <laughs> <laughs> we'll land down under where they spend dollary dues. And <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> oh... So, welcome to the insanity of this show. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us tonight. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in doing so. Um. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Again, I'm I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad you invited me onto uh, the show, and I'm excited to talk about playtesting.
0: Awesome! Can't wait. Mm-hmm. All right, now as I said, this is the first time uh, you've ever been on a podcast. Is that right?
3: Yes, uh, though I did uh, participate in two Legend of the Five Rings live streams
0: um,
3: for Fantasy Flight, so I have a little bit of experience.
0: Very good. I know we're excellent. Go and take a look at that, listeners, if you um, haven't already. Um, and um, so that basically means that some of our listeners uh, will have seen your name in print, and if they've been, obviously, in YouTube, they would have um, seen that as well. But most people won't really know anything about you, because I know that you haven't been on the Order 66. So to start us off, perhaps you can tell us who you are and what you do for Fantasy Flight Games.
3: Uh, So my name is Alexis. Hello. I also go by Lex. Um, I am a RPG developer for Fantasy Flight Games. So basically what that means is I am with the process start to finish for making game lines like Genesis, Legend of the Five Rings, and Star Wars.
1: So tell us, because obviously this is the, you know, a, usually, it's usually a passion or a hobby that turns into a career for most people in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. How, yep. did, how, did you, how did you get into gaming in the first place? Tell us a little bit about you and that.
3: Uh, so I have been gaming since about four years old. Uh, my dad got me into Magic the Gathering around then, and that's actually how I learned how to read. Wow. Um, and he got me into role-playing games really early. And my grandparents sort of cultivated this love of board games. And I've just kind of been doing it my whole life.
1: Oh, I, that makes my heart swell like you could <laughs> not imagine.
0: For you, thought. you win. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes.
3: Yep. I had a uh, a blue bird deck. Oh, I don't remember much about it. <laughs> but I remember it was blue and I remember there were birds.
0: Wow, <laughs> hey, that's that's cool.
3: Well,
1: my my nine year old, my nine year old, um, is I'm, I'm trying very hard to get her in as much gaming as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I come home last week, and she says, "Dad, these kids are playing this game at school that we don't have, um, and I, I really want to play it." And I'm like, "Okay," and she goes, "It's called KeyForge." <laughs> <laughs>
3: lovely great I and mean if, as far as card games go that's a great one to start with
1: it it's, it certainly is um, at that point though it was like well honey I actually have the key Forge starter set and she's like really and then it just devolved um, in the, uh, the best way possible
3: what's your favorite faction
1: oh, 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 oh so I've only played the starter set what are the there's only two in the starter set right
3: Oh, no, no, no. There's no, there's, there's, no, there's all, a lot there's of factions. All of,
1: the, all of them in the starter set. What's it? Ah, I've only, and bear oh, with me. I'm so, like, there's, I'm so there's I'm Mars, on. which
3: are the little Martians. There's Brobnar, right. which are like the big uh, giant people. Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, they just announced the Saurians, which are dinosaur people. There's Sanctum, yeah. which are like holy night spirits. There's a lot.
1: There's okay. It's the it's the one. uh uh The their symbol looks kind of like the Martian one, but it's gray with like three eyes. It looks like the little oh dis. Uh, uh no, it's um no, it's not dis. Uh, shadows.
3: Shadows. It's the shadows. Shadows. Yes. Okay.
1: Where the it looks shadows. like you ever,
3: that's so good.
1: You, ever, you ever see Princess Mononoke where they have the little tree spirits
0: where their heads like mm. twisting? Yeah. Yeah. That's what mm-hmm. it reminds. Me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, that got off topic really
0: fast. It did, really did. But (laughs) hey, look—it's it's 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 a to be uh, released soon Genesis setting. So yes, (laughs) let's try to bring it back on track. Um, But I'm a massive uh, massive Mars fan. So uh, we we play uh, KeyForge here with the kids as well. So um, yeah, they they love it. So uh, very very cool. Tim
3: Huckleberry is also a big Mars fan.
0: Right. Very good. Yeah.
3: My, uh, me, I'm a Logos fan,
0: okay. personally. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Very cool. All yeah. right. So to bring it back on topic, what is your <laughs> first love of Genesis? What style of game or, or game setting and themes do you like to get on the table uh, when you play or run games?
3: Uh, so I, I GM probably about 95% of the time. Uh, and I love kind of monster of the week mystery fantasy settings, but mm-hmm. I also like a little sci-fi, and I really love the android setting.
0: Right.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Dude, that, that's I haven't heard that one before. I, I love it. Monster of the week. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's kind
3: of like you. You. I mean, it can it can span a little longer than a week, but basically, there's this big bad creature, and it. F- Far, far uh, uh, outclasses your players, and so they need to investigate, find its weaknesses, strategize, kind of dig in to be able to defeat it. Um, and I really love that. I think it's a really good exercise in team building and and creative thinking.
0: That sounds that sounds very Buffy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, it yeah. is, yeah. It's kind of Buffy. Mm-hmm.
1: It's your, it's your, it's your, your, your average CW or used to be WB show, basically. Yep, you know, super, Buffy, <laughs> Supernatural. Uh, yeah, absolutely, love it. Yes. So, okay, Lex. Now that we've got you here, let's dive into this topic at hand: play testing. We we were we were honestly quite shocked um, at the the extreme listener response uh, to our announcement of this topic. Uh, we had a lot of questions flood in. Uh, So we thought we'd kind of tackle them tonight as a part of a larger conversation and a really organic discussion around playtesting. We have a few topics we would like to focus on, but um, I imagine this discussion will be pretty free-flowing. Does that work?
3: Yeah, that's great.
1: All right. Well, let's dive into it. Huli, where should we really start? Probably at the beginning.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Yes. Um, So – in your experience, how important is playtesting to to the overall look and feel of the final product that gets released at the end?
3: Oh, it, it, it can make or break a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, playtesting is exceptionally uh, important because you as a developer are staring at this thing that you're making for so long that you stop being able to see... Issues with it, mm-hmm. and having a fresh set of eyes is crucial.
0: Because <laughs> it's easy, I would imagine, getting sort of trapped in that. It's um, I, I know from my own writing that I've that I've done for FFG that it's you sort of you go through your own product x number of times, and then you put it out into the real world um, as in the playtesting world, and then all of a sudden, all this feedback comes back, and you go, know, okay. I didn't see any of that, so uh, yes. it certainly does sort of like because <laughs> when you when you're obviously delivering it, uh, it's very much a a you know just a piece of rock that you've basically put out there. To have that starting to get polished before the final um, polished product at the end is so very very important. So yeah, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly.
1: So if it if it is this important. Which it is okay, camera nation. It is, it is.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> if if it don't lie some, to the people, it's important. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's it, 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 it's it's hyper important. Um, you know it. It and we'll probably come to this just from my personal experiences playtesting my own work. Um, it can sometimes hurt as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um. But let's let's talk about the process itself of playtesting. I mean, really, at a high level, let's talk about this general process. And I really want to start with kind of a, a basic understanding of timelines, because one of the common questions we got asked, um, uh, specifically, uh, we had, and um, we had one of our listeners, uh, specific, uh, his name is Corby Kennard, uh, asked, when do you start the playtesting? Do you, do you do it early in design, further along in later stages, and, and what are, if any, the "Quote unquote" stages of a play test.
3: Uh, so this is a multi-layered question, and it will have a multi-layered answer. Um, <laughs> so you want to do it early, meaning once you have your your basic stuff, everything that you need, just put on paper. Um, so say you're doing, uh, maybe you're trying to develop like twenty new techniques and. I don't know, a bunch of, a, a bunch of mechanical bits. Once you have it all out on paper, that's when you should give it to playtesters. And then as you take their feedback or you, you yourself are like, oh, I actually want to adjust this or I want to change. You can give them updates so you can be like, okay, I, I wanted you to test these, these 20 techniques. Um, and now it's like a month later. And you're like, actually, you know, here's, here's this updated version. What do you think now? And so you can do it. You can do it kind of in this staggered way, um, at least for the more uh, kind of separated mechanical bits like that. For an adventure, um, which I know you, were, you guys were mentioning earlier, uh, once once you have the full draft um, and you have like your page numbers in there and everything, uh, once you have it all written out, give it to your playtesters. Don't do editing. Don't do proofreading. Maybe read through it once by yourself to just check for things give it to them and then start incorporating the feedback as they're giving it to you. That answers your first question. Uh, What was your second question?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. And you, I think you kind of hinted at it, which was what are, if any, the stages of a play test?
3: Yeah. So you're, you uh, first, you, first you want to set up the, the like here, here is like the scope of the play test for people. Um, and you get all the players in there and then you give them the first draft. And then I recommend, and you can do this a lot of different ways, I recommend that you lay out what the stages are for your playtesters. So you're like, here's stage one. I want you to report on you know, the first act or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, it's kind of organic in that you'll get you'll get feedback over time. So it's just this really big window of getting feedback and you're implementing it as you go. So I guess, I don't know if there's like a concrete, like, this is how you should always do your playtest, but it's sort of constantly coming in.
1: Ooh, does that okay.
3: answer the question?
1: It does. Well, it, it, does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it makes sense. I don't think there's one size that fits all. Mm. Um, Correct.
3: Yes, it really depends on how big your product is and what your product is.
1: But I think the key takeaway is that you should start it as early as you can in the process. I mean, before yes. before editing, before layout, before, before anything, as soon as you have oh, something. Yeah.
3: Definitely before layout because you do not want to go through the process of, oh, they've given me all this feedback and now I have to screw up my layout. Because I realized I didn't include something critical, Ooh. which happens. Yep. it happens even at even at the highest level, like even at fantasy flight games, a we'll playtester would be like, "Hey, you didn't explain this," and I'm like, "Hmm, you are correct that I did not explain <laughs> that. Let me do that now." <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, as as a corollary to that, and really the last thing to talk about for timelines, Lex, mm-hmm. both Corby um, and a listener, Theo Fatel, were curious. How long should play testing last? What what is the typical play test period?
3: So my real answer is it depends. But an actual answer that's tangible and somebody could actually use is probably somewhere between two and three months. Um as long as you have groups that are actually doing it. So you have to take into consideration when you're designing like your, your play test timeline. If you are having somebody run an adventure module, it is really hard, as I'm sure all of you know, uh, to get a group of people to sit down and play a game consistently. (laughs) So doing it over two to three months, um, you know, if you can get it a little longer than that, that's, you know, that's great. But two to three months, that'll allow them to do hopefully four to six sessions, I mean, they're not going to be playing every weekend, probably. Hmm. You just have to be realistic when you're thinking about who are my playtesters and what what are their limitations. Because they probably have full-time jobs or are doing something else. This isn't the only thing that they're doing. So, yeah.
0: Cool. Now, I know before we sort of get into who's doing the testing and uh, what sort of feedback that um, is going to be asked, let's just quickly chat about uh, what you need to provide them with. Um, So we've got a lot of questions here when it comes to to playtest strategy. Uh, And people are curious to know about sort of the variances, uh, if any, in testing processes based on on what you're testing. Um, Is it different for an adventure module versus a a new set of mechanics? I know we've sort of touched base on that. Um, But is is there a massive difference between the adventure versus... A new set of mechanics versus an entire setting, for example?
3: Yes. So, an adventure, you don't need, you probably don't need to give as much guidance. Mm -hmm. You say, hey, here is our timeline. This is when I need feedback by. Here are perhaps the dates that I would like, you know, reports by. But other than that, you don't really need to say anything specific because you want them to experience that adventure module just here is the product that I have made. Let me, you know, you just go experience this thing without too much input from me so I can get an authentic reaction to it. Mm -hmm. Um, That uh, obviously, if you have a specific thing, you're like, I'm really worried about this boss fight. You can say also, when you're doing this, please pay special attention to the boss fight. Um, For a new set of mechanics, uh, you are probably going to want to give more guidance on exactly what you want because playtesters can't read your mind. So if you say, here are here are a list of 15 new techniques that I have made, and that's all you say, it's possible that they'll just read them and say, This is what I think of them versus you saying, Here are a set of 15 new techniques, please make characters that are using these techniques and do several, you know, one-shot encounters with them to see how they function. Um I guess those are kind of the the main differences between the adventure module and the the new set of mechanics. An entire setting that's a little bit different. You don't usually play test a setting because there aren't really any crunchy bits. What you're doing is you're you're asking somebody to read through it for consistency and does this make sense versus can you can you test this? Can you physically do something with it and see if it ruins everything
0: <laughs> <laughs> is that something that is mainly done by proofreaders versus uh versus playtesters?
3: um so it depends okay. um we do give uh i mean we 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 do give settings to playtesters mm-hmm. in my experience um however a lot of the like changing of the setting is going to end up happening through story group for example for for an ip that we have it's going to happen in the editing phase we have one particular fantastic editor that is really good at you know checking for inconsistencies and i'm speaking from a point of legend of the five rings in this specific example um so both i guess um we also do cultural consultants if you are dealing with something in your setting that's um, specific to a culture, making sure that you have sensitivity readers. So you're not putting something out there. That's uh, super appropriation and awful and terrible. Mm. Um, it's, it's a multi-layered process. It's just not quite, it's spread out over, over more groups than just testing right. mechanics and an adventure, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: Ooh, that makes sense. Uh, and that's yeah, something that's, yeah, that that's, makes total. sense. Mm and that's something that uh, that l 5 r obviously has a lot of um, because of the 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 linkage to japanese culture yes mm. for sure
3: i f- forgive me i'm so i'm one of the primary developers on on legend of the five rings i do do things with genesis as well but yep. that's going to probably be where i'm speaking from mostly
0: absolutely
1: mm. <laughs> Well, it's, it's a worthy place to speak from. But let's not forget, you got to be very, I mean. I mean, can you imagine the nightmare of cultural appropriation issues for the development of the Terranoth setting? I mean, elves, <laughs> orcs, halflings, <laughs> these, these people you really don't want to piss off.
0: Yeah. The, um, the Orc Liberation Front, for example, is just like, you know, they're, they're very difficult to deal with. Quite. <laughs> All right. So, what do we actually sort of provide to our playtesters? What. What sort of, uh, what sort of information do, and I know that you've touched base on that already, um, that you give them a, a very, very sort of specific, this is what we want to do with these particular mechanics and, and things like that. Um, so, uh, what sort of stuff it should be provided, um, to, because obviously people have also got issues with protecting IP and, and, and whatever else as well that they don't want to give everything and it may also be a case that they want to give some parts to one group of playtesters. is it is that something that that ffg does or is it something that you would recommend for people to split different parts up or just give everyone all of uh the the entire document type thing
3: um okay so it depends again um let me, let me go through a list first of things that I would recommend that you provide uh, your playtesters. Sure. First and foremost, um, if this is your IP and this is something that is yours, you should make sure that you NDA them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you're trying to protect that content and maybe you don't know the playtesters as well, even if you do know them well, make sure that you're protecting your IP um, and your, your, your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, then you would provide them with... Uh, you can split it up, especially if it's a bigger project um so for example uh maybe you don't want to give an entire book to a group as long as you think that uh or as long as you don't think that splitting that book up would create a negative experience for those playtesters because you don't you don't want to you know take one thing that references another, but then you split it up, make sure that you're, you're giving them everything they need to have, you know, that kind of full little experience. Um, You can do it. That's my answer. Mm -hmm. You can do it. I don't know if I would recommend it um, because it's very interesting to see how several groups experience the same thing that you've given them. Mm -hmm. Because one of the most important things when you're getting feedback from play testers is knowing when to actually listen to their advice and their feedback. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you know, say you have 10 groups and nine out of 10 groups are saying this thing is a problem. Then you know that there is a consistent issue mm. versus if you had just given it to that one group and then given the other group, something else, then you have the one group saying, Oh, it's fine. Mm. But in reality, it's not fine. Nine out of 10 times.
1: Yep. Yeah. They ask you if you're fine, but you're not fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: Oh, all right. <laughs> so the so the overall response to that would be give uh, have multiple groups and give them yes. all the same thing.
3: Yes. Unless you are confident that splitting it up will not negatively impact the play test. Right. If only I could speak so concisely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay but but interestingly though you've given us an excellent segue into the next topic though because when we talk about you know what you're providing them you mentioned getting the feedback from them okay and how that plays into it so let's talk about feedback material because there's a lot we had a lot of questions here Mm -hmm. um and you know uh you know uh, what's the best process verbal conversations observations reports write-ups questionnaires um to to I guess to, to start with, uh, we had we had a kind of a basic question that was echoed by Tyler Comstock, uh, Kimber Bowen, and David Morris. What kind of feedback am I asking for, and how should I structure it? And associated to that, how do how do you get meaningful and constructive feedback?
3: So, uh, this answer is. Basically the same for both adventures, and then just crunchy mechanical bits that are separate from adventures. You are looking for the kind of feedback that tells you whether or not something is unfun or broken or or makes the experience of what you're trying to provide bad. Um, as for how to structure it, um, we use forums uh at fantasy flight and i think you could probably get a forum up and running or you could do like a facebook group perhaps something something where you can have your playtesters there um there are a lot of different ways to do this and this is just my recommendation but i kind of like the the open forum where you make a post and here are all the materials and then you lay out here's the structure of the playtest, like we mentioned earlier um and then you let you encourage, and you let the playtesters talk to each other, because a lot of time what I, I'm observing is a playtester will will create a thread and they'll ask a question, and um, another another playtester from a different group will come in and say, "Oh well, this is how I saw it," and then they'll have it, they'll have this kind of engaging discussion where they sort of hash out what they're feeling and what they're thinking and what they experienced, and that is more useful information that I get to use because I get to see kind of how the conversation is revolving around, I don't know, that boss fight or, or this encounter with a specific uh, NPC or something like that. Mm. Um, as for how you get meaningful and constructive feedback, it's really about how you set it up in the beginning and how much you're engaging with your playtesters as you go through. I recommend checking in with your playtesters regularly. And if you are using the forum model, make sure you're responding to them mm-hmm. um, because they're more likely to communicate with you. If you're communicating back uh, because screaming at a wall is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sometimes the answer is you might not get super constructive feedback. Hmm. Um and the way to kind of deal with that is to try to get as many groups as you can um and assume that probably about 50% of them won't give you any constructive feedback. Right. Because life got in the way or they mm. just weren't very engaged with the material, or they didn't realize they were supposed to be playtesting somehow, or <laughs> all sorts of things.
1: You see, you, you, you just spoke some serious wisdom, and I want to I wanna reiterate this, because it's clear to me, especially, and as we'll get into this from a lot of the questions we got, a lot of people who aren't in the know or haven't either been involved in playtesting as playtesters or have never done it for material they've produced, they, they, they assume it's old school, They assume it's it's you know I'm gonna create a a a form and email it off and they're gonna fill it out feedback style and send it back to me (laughs) and it's like in in 2019 uh, and this is absolutely brilliant you know use social media create a closed Facebook group for this okay build a private forum the forum I think the forum's idea is is the best absolutely brilliant (laughs) suggestion. Build a private forum for the playtesters to have access to. Where At that point, you've got a consolidated, searchable, living record of your Mm playtesting and the results. Mm -hmm.
3: Uh, One more thing I forgot to mention for getting meaningful and constructive feedback. If you are particularly worried about something, and I think I mentioned this earlier, make sure to ask that. Make sure to include that thing when you're saying, you know, kind of laying out your expectations for the play test. Mm. Say, I, I would love to have three reports, and I'd like to report on Act 1, Act 2, and I'd like you to tell me how this felt, if you're worried about something. Tell me how this felt, because... It can be overwhelming to a playtester to just be like, ah, playtest this thing. And sometimes that's fine because with an adventure, again, like I mentioned earlier, you kind of want them to experience it. But if you give them sort of uh, things to hold on to, something to grasp, somewhere to start, mm. that can also generate discussion. And if you're noticing, if you're using the forum model, you're noticing there's not a lot of conversation, try to start one. Try to say, uh, hi, it's been a little quiet for a while. How did, how did people feel about Act 1? I'm looking for a check-in. And then that can kind of start a little bit of a discourse. Um, just just stay engaged with it because if you aren't engaged, they probably won't be either.
0: <laughs> very, very wise indeed. <laughs> um, are there any sort of specific uh, like questions as far as examples that, um, that you might be asking? Uh, The players versus game masters.
3: The way that we uh, sort of do it is we primarily uh, deal with the game masters. Mm -hmm. um, And they are, they are kind of consolidating and then sending us, you know, player thoughts and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's not the rule, but that's generally uh, what I've experienced. Um, And so most of the questions are directed at game masters. And then the game masters are sort of asking questions to their playtest group. Um, as for examples, I would definitely ask anything anything that you are worried about. But I mean, the obvious questions like, did this scene make sense? Mm-hmm. Did how did this boss fight feel? You know, um, if you're if you're looking for a balancing thing, so I'm gonna go back to the boss fight thing because it's the easiest thing to mm-hmm. to talk about. If you have a boss fight and you're worried that uh, it is just gonna get crushed by the players, mm-hmm. ask questions about that say, how how long did it take you to defeat this thing? Um, did the players feel engaged? Did they feel challenged? Um, noting that I'm specifically framing it as if I'm asking the game master this. But you can kind of do it either way. If you want to do a form and include all of the playtesters on it, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you might even get more feedback that way. Yep. Uh, that's just not the way that I've personally done it.
0: Mm. And I think that's important feedback as well is to – Rather than get everybody because I think that you potentially you could get lost in the masses, for want of a better term. Yeah. That if you've just got it as the GMs, so as the coordinator group leader, for want of a better term, that um that you're engaging in and then let them have the flow on with the playtesters that they're playing with. Yes. Yep. Yeah.
1: We had a related question uh, that came in from a polyhedron man or poly <laughs> polyhedron man. Uh,
3: Excellent name. <laughs> I love it.
1: Um, yeah. So polyhedron man asked, um, what are the pros and cons of both observed and or reported or, or survey playtesting? And honestly, for FFG, I, I, do, you re- do you even really you really get the chance to do observed playtesting, do you?
3: We do both, I guess, is my answer. Yeah. Um, and I think both styles, both uh, you not participating, in, well, you're participating, but like forum style and observed style have a lot of benefits and they sort of complement each other. Um, and I, I think that if you have the opportunity to do so, you should do both. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is if you have like the forum, for example, uh, you don't kind of have that observation anxiety that people can get when they're being observed because that happens sometimes um if you have people that are uh f- for example if you had a family member play test something which i don't know if i recommend or not but if you had a family <laughs> member play play test something they might be more inclined to say oh this is great or not want to you know tell you honestly what they thought of it um, whereas when you have the forum discussion there's a little less of a that barrier there.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean,
3: everyone's respectful, of course. Don't take guff from your playtesters. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I don't really know. I guess that's the con of the observed play is that people might react a little bit differently. The a con for the forum thing is you have a little bit less control because with an observed play, like you know when you're starting, you know when you're ending. Mm. Potentially, you could kind of veer it back on path if it gets kind of off topic. Um, And then both obviously have their, their, their boons. uh, The forum, you'll get more engagement. You'll get people uh, willing to speak a little bit more about the product. And for the observed version, you get to specifically test things. Like you can, you can ask the GM or if you're the GM or whatever, you can say, this is the thing that I want to focus on. And you can sort of, channel it into that specific thing versus it's sort of out of your hands once it goes on the forum mm. um, because we all know how we all know how <laughs> RPGs go where you you decide that you really want to talk to the bartender for four hours <laughs> and not actually do the thing. So it's yeah, they're both great. and I think that if you can, you should definitely do both. if you could only do one, I would probably lean more towards the forum stuff just because that's usually more people mm. um, and more feedback is better.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i
3: don't i don't personally like survey playtesting (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i wouldn't mind like asking you know my forums like here's some specific questions but i i don't know i i feel like it's less engaging because it's just so it's (sighs) so far removed from actually engaging with your playtesters and i (laughs) think that's really important
1: and it's so brutal speaking as someone who has playtested for major companies and been in, been in that playtesting seat, it's so brutal when you're given a survey or a form mm. to fill out. It's so brutal. It's like just shut up and just listen to me. That's that, that's the way <laughs> it's like. It's like you will get a lot more out of me if you just let me give you a narrative and just give you feedback instead of this list of questions. It's like it's like uh, corporate uh, team building exercises. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh no! Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, I know that I've been involved in playtesting where uh, they have given you like a 10-page document to uh say this is – and it was like a breakdown of all of the different particular sections and they were asking fairly specific questions. But when you're talking about a 10-page document, that is overwhelming and you just go, I don't know whether I can do this or not. And that's not what you want to do to your playtesters because that's not going to encourage them to – to test it out because they're going to think of it more like homework rather than Mm. this is still fun, but we really, really want to know what you, what what you think.
3: It's really about striking a balance. Mm. Um, So I've been working for FFG for over a year now, and I've done a bunch of different play tests and you really have to find that sweet spot between structure and like too much structure Mm. Because you will get playtesters then not engaging because they feel so overwhelmed because there's just too much there or you get playtesters not engaging because you didn't give them enough. You didn't give them enough direction. So they thought, oh, this is enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So you really have to kind of think about what what is important to me. About this playtest, what are the big important things that I want players to look at? And then, if you have some like specific questions, that's fine too. You just don't want to get into that ten-page document
0: uh, <laughs> zone,
3: or even five pages. Five pages yep. is still a lot too.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right. So now that we've talked about the how the process of planning your playtest should go, and how you prepare for it, let's dive into the ever so fun topic. Of actually getting this whole process done. So let's talk about the playtesters themselves. Theo Fattel, uh, one of our listeners, wanted to know how many playtesters do you actually need? What's what's a good sampling of playtest numbers?
3: I would recommend, uh, so more is always better. Mm. More is always better. As many groups as you can get. I would recommend trying to get somewhere between 10 and 12 to agree to do it
2: Mm.
3: and then expect around half of that to actually do it. Mm. And if you get more fantastic, um, I, I personally would say whatever number that you get of groups to agree, expect about half Mm. and then you should be safe. Um, because that's at least what, (laughs) what i have experienced because again (laughs) life things come up like i mentioned before um so yeah i would say somewhere between 10 and 12 but it depends on like the size of your project and i mean if you're if you're only doing a sample of like i don't know like 10 techniques then you probably don't need 12 groups doing it Mm. but again more more is going to be better it's going to give you more consistent data
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now as a related question to this if that's the number you're shooting for who should be involved and, and Joshua Taylor uh, another listener noted he says if if this is your first time developing something of this magnitude which I know because of his his uh, comments on social media that, that he is and this is for him he says how do you go about choosing your play testers I mean it's probably not going to include professionals I mean these are just friends and acquaintances do you do an open call through a public avenue such as a Genesis Facebook group
3: um so if you know you're if you're not dealing with professionals and a lot of people aren't especially through the the genesis foundry um using friends and acquaintances is fine especially if they have experience in playtesting um and it, a, again if you want to do some of that observed play so say you have you have friends or maybe a couple family members and they've played before but they're they're not comfortable doing it themselves then you can run it for them and that's still data Getting as much data as possible is fantastic, even if it's not the most ideal circumstances. It's it's still worth doing. Um, if you are comfortable doing an open call through a public avenue like Genesis Facebook group, that's fine. But I still recommend sh- making sure you're taking the precautions to protect the things that you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to think the best of people, but you know you, you're 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 putting out something that you've you've kind of put your heart and soul and blood into and you 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 want to make sure that it's safe. So yes, I think that you you totally can do that. Genesis Facebook group, fantastic. Uh reaching out on your social media, seeing who's interested. Um if you're comfortable with it and you can do it in a safe way, you could go to a local hobby shop, Mm -hmm. especially if you go there often and you can talk to people there. Um a lot of people are, I find, more often than not willing to and happy to help with that kind of thing. Um just because it's it's something new that they get to experience, so they're getting something out of it
0: mm-hmm. one of uh, one of the uh, one of our listeners uh, again polyhedron man um,
3: <laughs> he's
0: basically said, uh, what about testing involving the creator? um how does this affect bias or objectivity? Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so like I mentioned before, um one of the cons of doing kind of the observed or you GMing it is you you might get into one of those circumstances where where your playtesters are worried about uh, uh, giving you feedback or hurting your feelings. Because it's, it's different giving someone feedback over a forum versus, like, to their face, right? Mm. Um, we tend to, to, as people, not want to make people feel bad or, like, see their physical reactions to maybe being sad. Um, so it can, it can affect... Um, their feedback, but there's also the your your own bias because you might, depending on how you are as a GM mm-hmm. um, or how you are as a player, you might try to steer people towards a certain direction, and you have to be the kind of person that can just let it let it play out mm-hmm. um, and try to be as um, um, objective as possible because. Otherwise you're not going to be getting as valuable of data because you don't know what they would have chosen because you sort of steered them in that direction. And mm-hmm. now it's a little bit different. That's, that's kind of more speaking to adventures and that kind of thing. Yep. If you're just testing techniques. Then I don't think it's really an issue mm. because at that point, it's not about the narrative. It's not about like that kind of experience. It's about, does this technique work and does it feel good? Mm. Um, and I think in that case, go for it. Um, but you should have way more groups than just one that you're running. So uh, a mixture is good.
0: Absolutely. And th- there's also some arguments that could be uh, had for um, if you have a lot of players at your, at your disposal but don't have a lot of GMs that you try to run it through. And I know this is more from a convention adventure uh, perspective that if you're running it, um, that you run it several times with several different groups so that you're getting a different look and feel um, mm-hmm. if, uh, if GMs are a, a bit of a lack of resource for you.
3: Yeah, um, that is totally viable. Yeah, particularly if you don't have like 10 or 12 groups, that might seem very daunting for people. Mm. Um, if you have maybe three or four groups and they're all willing to meet but none of them GM because they just don't, yeah, totally run it because that can still provide valuable feedback. You just have to try to be objective, especially if it's mm. it's narrative based. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And you can go to you can like I'm I'm a listen personally. I'm a huge fan of the of of, of forum playtesting. I just think you get more data that way. Mm. You know when, when you when you can disperse it out and get that back. Yeah. But there are and and this relates back to one of the earlier questions. Some of the pros and cons of both observe playtesting, especially at a convention. A good like we like uh, Lex. We, we had um uh, uh for our second episode we had uh, uh Phil Myuski and Kimber Bowen uh, from Studio Four Four who did Starkana for uh, for uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. uh and we we had them on to talk about about it um as, as they released it for the Foundry and one of the things they talked about was convention play that that was a huge avenue of play testing for them because they could have a couple GMs running an adventure and they could get eight play sessions in in a single weekend. Yes, and, and that's that. That's that's. That, it's a stack. It, you you can do that at a con, and you can't do it elsewhere. Another thing I find very interesting because I I do happen to believe in just in my experience as a hard learned lesson from my own stuff that I've written. I. Tr- it's best if you're not the one running it <laughs> if it's an actual adventure module you need to give it to them cold so that if somebody purchases this they can play through it but i yes. love seeing i love seeing the interactions between the players and the gm watching it because different gms are different and some gms will take the rein and explain things but the fact that they have to explain something means that it's not clear to the player and that's a problem that yes you, you may only get through observed play.
3: Yes. And if you're doing something at a convention where you have um, a, at least a roughly laid out product, that can also tell you a lot about your layout as well. If, you're, if, you're, uh, if your GM is constantly flipping through the book because the player asked them a question and, and it's on page 34,
2: <laughs> um,
3: that's an issue too. That's just, yes. It, it, it's fantastic to watch somebody else GM something that you've made as long as you're sort of like this, you know, quiet observer and you're, you're keeping an eye on things, but you're not trying to interfere with what's happening and just letting it kind of exist organically.
0: Mm. And I know from experience that sometimes doing it that way, you can pick up some major flaws that you didn't actually even consider. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. An example that I had was I, I did a Star Wars adventure where there was one of the PCs basically had a child who they were looking after. And I didn't consider for a moment that the PCs would actually manage to keep the child because the point of the exercise was that the child was being kidnapped. I didn't even consider, <laughs> and I know that sounds really <laughs> weird, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't even consider that, and that actually happened in the first time that we uh, we tested it. So I had to turn suddenly turn the adventure on its head as I was running it. But then I've then uh, taken that in consideration when doing uh, the full version of the adventure. So uh, so yeah, that's a, a most important thing that yeah your your big holes in your plot. Can be highlighted quite quickly. <laughs> yes, uh,
3: if you um, if you are creating a product that is supposed to be a certain amount of time and experience, such as like a, a, a convention game, which is about three four hours, hmm. um, that's really important to play test it. Uh, for example, I had been working on something that was supposed to be done in about three or four hours, and the I observed play of it. Um, and the first section of the adventure took about two hours, which was a problem because mm. there were a lot more sections after that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it can really help you cut back on stuff. <laughs> mm, it wasn't great. Well, it was good. It was good because it was playtesting, but yeah. it, it yeah, kind of had me face palming a little bit there.
2: Okay, now, it wasn't it, the player's it, fault.
3: I just. It was totally my fault, but oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I guess this NPC is really interesting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The most fascinating barkeep that's ever been created. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) You somehow managed to invent the most interesting man in the world (laughs) for your heart. Oh, no. (laughs) <laughs> when he flips a story point, it automatically flips back. <laughs> um, yes. So we had, um, we had, we had, we had one other question around play specifically, but honestly, I think we've addressed it already. Mm. Um, Corby Kennard wanted to know, uh, he wanted us to talk about, you know, using conventions and convention play for playtesting out things. I think we've done that. Um, and I think we touched on the other part of his question to a degree. Um, he was curious, about, should you have the same people playtest at every stage, or should you change it up, and have different people playtesting the same mechanics or content? Um,
3: uh, so I recommend if you want accurate feedback for, especially <laughs> if it's not if it's not a huge giant book you should have every group playtest the same stuff, so you can get all of their opinions on the same stuff and you can compare it, because that's a really important part of playtesting, is looking at all your feedback and saying, huh, I guess all of the players really hated this except for one.
0: <laughs> I probably
3: should do something about that.
0: <laughs> one thing that I can say uh, about that uh, would, uh, I think when it comes to even to, to writing, one of the rules of thumb that I've always found is that you never give your work to the same person twice because they get used to, seeing what they've seen before and they may skip over stuff that is brand new or that you've you've modified or or whatever else. And I think the same sort of thing can apply to adventures where you've run it once and then you've done some major changes. Uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense when it comes to adventures anyway to to not run the same group through the same adventure twice. Um, But I think that it's important to have different groups, definitely.
3: Uh, I would actually – I would agree with that. Um, so if you have an adventure and you have a group of, you have five different groups and you have them all run through the adventure and then you made giant changes and you had enough time to have people go through it again, yes, definitely try to find a fresh group with a fresh pair of eyes, um, that doesn't know all the secrets of the adventure. So they can really experience it fresh. However, if you are doing this and you're giving them an adventure and then they're running through it and then you make slight changes and you're like, how does, how does this passage feel now? How does like this look to you mm. versus giving them the whole thing but giving them a chunk of it to just be like, you had said that you know this was hard to understand. Is this easier to understand now? You can do things like that, and I mm. think that's still very valuable.
1: Yep. Good feedback. Well, okay, does this lead us then, Hooli, to talking about actually evaluating and incorporating the feedback you get?
0: I think it does. So our rounds of playtesting are done we've We've done all the hard yards as far as getting that content out there, having the people run through it. But what do we do now? Uh, how do we know that what you've tested is done and and what do we do with that feedback? Now, a question brought up by Chris Hunt, uh, who is uh, one of the contributors to uh, to the foundry already, uh, highlights this discussion well and he says, uh, or asks, can you talk about trying to understand the core of the problem raised by playtesters rather than going with what they suggest? Now, as this raises an interesting point, anyone who works in product development will tell you that c- customers are rarely right about what they need. <laughs>
3: uh, so, you're correct. This, is, <laughs> this goes back to the conversation that we we're having where more playtest groups are better. Because then you're kind of getting this this wider view, these multiple views of the thing, and that'll that'll help you identify problems versus what's just somebody's opinion, what's just you know, this one person didn't understand it. Though if you did have ten groups and one person didn't understand it, you might want to adjust it still because if you multiply that by like however many people are gonna look at your product, then that's more than one person. Mm-hmm proportionally. So you're never done. <laughs> you're never you're never actually done.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um your product will never be perfect. But you know that it's ready to go out there. Obviously you need to do editing and you need to do proofreading and if you have, you know, your editors and proofreaders should also be able to tell you if something makes sense, but they might not be able to tell you if the mechanics are correct. Hopefully By this point, your playtesting is done and you have solved the mechanical errors. You've solved the issues that would make the game unplayable, that would make the game uh, unfun for those kind of crunchy reasons. And you've also addressed like big overarching narrative. Now Mm -hmm. you have your editor go through it. And now you have, you know, uh, you go through it again and if you if you have other people developing with you, you all sit around a table and you go over the mechanics one more time and mm-hmm. you read through it one more time and then you have your proofreaders look at it and if at the end of all of this stuff you would be proud to put your product out there, then you know it's over. Mm-hmm. You just have to let it go because it'll never be perfect. Mm-hmm. But if you can be proud of it, then You've done, you've done good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is, this this is, this is wisdom. It's so hard.
3: It's so hard to, to
1: let it go. (laughs) It's, it's, it's a baby. I, I don't know. (laughs) If,
3: If you keep, if you keep picking at it, you'll make it not good.
2: If you if you
3: keep looking at it over and over and over again and keep changing things, mm. you will probably end up changing something that worked fine or worked really well. Mm. Um, because you just, at some point, you just have to let other people look at it. Mm. You have to let other people kind of have it for a while. You can look at it one more time. And you just have to say, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is the thing that I've made. And if there's something later on, you realize, Oh, that really bothered me. Then that's a lesson for the next thing that you make.
1: Yeah. Indeed. You know, it was, it was many, many years ago. Um, on, on, on the, on the order 66 podcast, we were talking to Rodney Thompson, um, who among other things developed, uh, you know, Lords of Waterdeep board game was a designer at Wizards of the Coast for, for D and D. And of course their, their version of star Wars, their last version of star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, he he said something that stuck with me, and I've found to be true. He said, look, you can do all you can, but no game survives contact with the player base. <laughs> no,
3: you will never make everyone happy. It's not possible. No. You could have a perfect game, blessed by the gods as <laughs> they be, and somebody would not like it.
0: Yep, <laughs> absolutely. And I tell you what, even if they didn't, there's always a pages that you can throw into the mix. and <laughs> yes. and when it comes to the foundry, everything's in PDF format. So you can modify yep. it later on down the track with a version one <laughs> point yep. one.
1: Now, I do want to return to the point that Chris brought up, which i which which for me personally is a good one and very hard to do, and something that's not easy to do. and that is, how do you derive the problem based on what your playtesters are saying? And for those for those not aware, for uh, for me, I I work in software development in product management specifically. I'm I'm a product director for a a, a large international software company. And w- one of the things that I'm always used to whenever we're we're testing software, <laughs> whether it's it's alpha or beta, is that especially customers and users play playtesters, um, they never come to you with a problem. They come to you with a solution all right, it's not, uh, this doesn't make sense, or I don't understand this, they'll often come to you and say, uh, this needs to say this, or this should work like this. And that may or may not be correct or, or what you're going for, and there's a fine line between taking that as valuable feedback or being able to roll it up to, okay, why are they making this suggestion? What particular theme or mechanic or section is illegible or confusing that is causing them to say that this needs to be reworked and i guess i guess my my experience would be focus on the problem the solution is deriving from when they're giving you the solution doesn't mean the solution is necessarily bad it could be a great idea hmm. but you know focus on the problem first and try and roll that up yep um yes. If if that if that makes sense, and related to that, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more. Like um, Chris Hunt also brought this up because you've you've mentioned this a couple of times. What do you do when you have contradictory playtest feedback?
3: So this is an interesting question um, because it happens a lot. Uh, part so this is partially solved by doing the forum model because somebody will say something and then if you have an active you know, group of people, then they might fight about it a little bit, you know, all in good fun, all in good humor, but then they sort of work it out and then you can see that progression in thought and that can actually help you find, okay, so this person thinks this and this person thinks this, where's the root of this? Like you were talking about. And how can I make sure that it is clear? It might not make both people happy, But is there a way that I can make it more clear and I can make it generally better? Um, Another good way is if you're looking at two contradictory things and you feel very strongly one way, I would recommend for a second you step back. And if you are working with a team, ask your team what they think too. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a knee-jerk reaction about something, that might be a sign that you should ask someone on your team or you should ask somebody else kind of what they're thinking about it uh, because you might be getting a little bit defensive and we haven't really talked about this that much, but if this is the first time that you're, you've made a product or even the second time or the third time, you might be a little defensive about your work (laughs) and getting (laughs) criticism and feedback can be hard it can be hard not to take that personally. Mm-hmm. So trying to kind of have, have a group that knows what's going on, whether you're fellow developers or, or if you're an independent developer, you know, somebody else that you're talking to about this process, mm-hmm. um, to be like, here's the situation, and, you know, here are what these two people are saying, what do you think, um, can be very valuable too. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's a judgment call for you. You just want to try to get as much information as you can, then look at it both ways, And then take the thing that makes the most sense because at the end of the day, you are the developer. You're the person making the game.
0: Absolutely. Great advice there. Now, one thing that I did want to touch base on very quickly, which we sort of haven't really sort of covered in our show notes, but it's a bit of an audible, is we've given a lot of advice when it comes to you as a developer, um, writing your own stuff, having it play tested. But let's look at it also from the – if you're a play tester and how you should sort of like really be um, – what sort of feedback you should be providing and how you should be providing that. And this may be uh, an, an, another show topic altogether, I guess. But it, it's one of the things that I, I think is really, really important. We touch base on it there. Um, when it comes to providing feedback, don't just say – this is garbage, always go with a solution. Whether it's used in the end of the day is neither here nor there. But I think that it's a case that don't just go in with, a no, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. Also go in with the, well, this doesn't work and this is why I don't think it works and this is maybe how you could solve that problem. Would that be a, a good suggestion?
3: Yes, I think that's an excellent suggestion. Something else that I would say, as as a side note, if you are a playtester thinking about being a playtester, be enthusiastic, and try to be try to be kind and always ask questions. It's always fantastic to ask questions, um, and 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 coming at it from a, a situation uh, like like Huli uh, said of of saying, "Hey, this thing not working great, uh, but." Here is, you know, my actual feedback on the thing rather than just saying throw it in the throw it in the dumpster. Burn it. Throw it in the river. <laughs> Burn it and start over. Uh no, I've I've gotten a comment like that before. Uh, not specifically directed at me, but yep, just start over. Just just go ahead and start the whole thing over. Uh nope. <laughs> That's Arch. not why we're here. <laughs>
1: Wow! Wow!
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so to put an end to this conversation, and you actually, I think, already said, I think, more or less, what needs to be said on this. Mm. But we, we had a, a, a as a last question. Listener Corby Kennard was curious: How do you know you're good? How do you know if something is finally balanced?
3: It isn't. <laughs> <laughs> However. If you've done your due diligence and you think that you could be proud of what you're putting out there, then it's done. Mm. It 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 has provided lessons for the future, and it I'm pretty sure people are going to like it. I mean, if you pour your heart and soul into something, like, somebody's going to like it. Mm. You're good. It's fine. <laughs> it's not balanced. It's and There's going to be people that don't like it, but they don't matter. It's fine. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> absolutely wisdom, wisdom. <laughs>
3: i mean i don't mean to i I don't mean to like slash somebody's i'm sure there's somebody out there that's gonna be like no my thing is perfectly balanced i a movie. to be i i disagree i don't know what it is but there's something wrong with it probably and somebody will find it it's the internet
0: yeah pretty <laughs> much <laughs>
1: <laughs> the land of sunshine, rainbows, and extremely well-behaved people.
0: Um, <laughs> we talking to the same reality? Anyway, moving along.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of sunshine, rainbows, and extremely well-behaved people, yeah. Lex, it has been wonderful having you with us to discuss this topic. Thank you.
3: Yeah, it's been great being on the show.
0: Awesome. And, yeah, I know that you guys spend a lot of time with us, and it is in your own time. So, uh, yeah. Thank you again, um, from me for uh, for the time that you've given us today.
3: Yeah, uh, anytime.
0: Awesome. Maybe
3: Hopefully. not literally anytime because you <laughs> live very far away and our time zones aren't the same. But you may ask anytime.
2: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All
3: right. Anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. And uh, it's been wonderful having you.
3: Yeah. Thanks.
0: Well, there you go. She's not only just a great boss, <laughs> but she's a good sport, uh, and apparently a good interviewee. She was amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a great discussion. Um, and and honestly, I, I I hope to have her back. That was that was that was that was very crunchy. It was very meaty. It was very impactful, and there was a lot of wisdom in that. Mm. And so I hope. I hope the listeners really got something out of it. Absolutely. Um, God, I, I, I did, certainly.
0: Mm. But,
1: Hool-Aid, I think, you know, we should probably think about talking to our next special guest.
0: Mm. I'm certainly looking forward to this. So let's get talking uh, Terranoth Adventures with our next guest on a segment we'd like to call Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold.
1: The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis, new settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content
0: out there. Now tonight's guest has been also involved in playtesting in the past, so we might get his take on it regarding the amazing adventure that he wrote, which is also available on the Foundry right now. Now here to talk about the Terranoth adventure, Hadra's Shard, part one, which sounds very ominous, Um, he's a well-known voice in the D20 radio community, a freelance proofreader for FFG, and one of the best painters of miniatures... That I've ever come across tonight. The Forge Podcast is glad to welcome to the show, Darren West. Darren, welcome. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That's perfectly <laughs> fine. It's great to have you.
1: Very excited. Very excited to have you here. So, all right, Darren. Um, some introductions to start with. You know, can you tell us and listeners a little bit about yourself and your your gaming career?
4: Um. Sure. Um, by trade, uh, I'm a software QA, um, but my heart has always been with gaming. And my gaming career started back in probably Redbox back in the old days. Been GMing since I was about 10. So, gosh, I don't even want to put those numbers together. Who <laughs> um, <laughs> knows what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. you, um, <laughs> um, And um, about. 2010, us, my players told me to go to Gen Con for this event called uh, uh, Iron GM. And I was like, I'm not going to Gen Con by myself. And <laughs> they pushed me and pushed me and I finally went and I entered the contest and I won, which was really weird. And um, I realized that I could do this at conventions. And then I started meeting great people like yourself and Huli, and seeing the potential for not just running games but for writing games and for uh, creating things which has been really great so yeah my gaming career has uh, been long and uh torrid but wonderful
0: awesome now very quickly can you tell me about ingm because i've looked at that and obviously it's a little bit a little bit harder for me to get to to gen con being on the other side of the planet and all but um yeah tell me a little bit about ingm what was that like
4: so um, the year I went, they were doing the Iron GM Gauntlet, which apparently is worse than normal Iron <laughs> Iron GM. Um, the first one, it's it's easily twenty hours of gaming. Obviously, four hour stints with breaks in between. But uh, your first game, they have you um, they give you a game, they have you run it as is, and then another Iron GM comes up, whispers something in your ear, and you now have to change the story on the fly. And at my table is usually a secret iron GM and a bunch of iron players. They rape me. And then there are other tables with other GMs and so on and so forth. Uh, the second time they gave us 15 minutes to put an adventure together and then run it for a different group of people. That way you're not with the same table. Yeah. And then the last one, um, was just seeing how closely we could follow a standard edition. And then the first, Grand finale, if you're the GM who survives, the grand finale is you go head-to-head against a different GM with two groups of four players, and those groups get to decide whether you or the Iron GM won. Wow. And by some miracle, miracle, (laughs) I managed to uh, come out um, of the gauntlet as the Iron GM and the winner, so that was pretty exciting.
0: That's cool. Very cool. So, obviously, you're pretty familiar with the Halleber Systems. But yeah, I'm assuming <laughs> that you've got a love of Genesis as well. So, what is your first love of Genesis? What's you know what style of game or or game setting and themes do you like to get on the table when you play?
4: Wow, um, gosh, <laughs> they're all my favorite children. Isn't that what somebody else said? Um, <laughs> no, fantasy. Fantasy is probably still my favorite. Um, um, I'm, you know, raised on Tolkien, um, started in Redbox. You know, I grew up loving good old fashioned DD, and I really do enjoy a good fantasy romp. I just enjoy trying to find different takes on fantasy. Um, my second love would obviously be Android. So um, when they came out with Android, I'm pretty sure I. Um, giggled for about an
1: hour. Awesome. Sorry, man, we have brought you on here to talk about something very specific that you have brought to the community. Um, and that would be Hadra's shard. It is currently in the top 10 hottest products on the Foundry right now. And incredible congratulations. It is now meddled as a copper bestseller. So congrats on that. Um, and tell us, man, about this clearly popular adventure module. If you if you had to describe Hadra's Shard to someone, part one, uh, or the series, I'm hoping we can talk about that in a bit, um, <laughs> how would you do it? What would you say to someone who's interested or thinking about buying this?
4: Um, well, uh, I would say that, first of all, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, in this adventure, the players are going to get to find themselves traveling in some unusual parts of Manara, specifically in Terranoth. Um, and they're going to go to a small town called um, Strange Strangehaven, um, and they're going to get a feel for both town life and a little bit of wilderness life. Um, it is a first part of a three-part adventure series, but don't let that scare you because it's made to be a standalone adventure. Um, in fact, all three will be standalones or something you can tie together. So if you're just wanting a cool game, you can just slap down at a convention and play with your friends, or if you want something that you can draw out over several games part one can be drawn out to three or four games if you really wanted to
0: mm. very cool very cool so what makes this module so much different than than the other adventures that that we've seen come up on the foundry um since uh, since the release
4: um well first of all it's it's off there's not a whole lot out there um mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Android is really sexy and, um, hot right now, mm. but I've heard over the years, a lot of, you know, hardcore old school D and D people going, you know, I'd probably do more Terranoth if there were more adventures. And I thought, okay, challenge accepted. So <laughs> I, I wanted to go ahead and make that. Um, and then of course in the adventure itself, I've put in a new monster template, mm-hmm. um, that can be slapped over any kind of, um, rival, minion group, or nemesis you've got. Um, I've also included um, madness rules. Um, I took took a little hint from the uh, fear rules in the main Genesis Core rulebook and uh, modified them. So, come with a few charts on permanent, semi-permanent, and temporary madness. So, that you can use in any game if you wanted to. You could take that and put it into your um, science fiction game if you run into like an aliens situation. So
1: yes, I, I love I love the madness rules. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's a fun read. I'm going through this and like, oh, I gotta use that in other things I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so okay, so that is a very unique part about this particular adventure. But I mean aside from that, you know, modules come in various different shapes and sizes. What other content can players expect to find in your adventure when they pick it up?
4: Well, um, I've also included a few little equipment items that are unusual. Uh, I'm actually kind of curious to see if um, some of the stories come back from GMs and players if how they utilize some of the new items in there. I also um, made the town very immersive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really wanted—I really wanted to. When you walked into the town, you could feel the like the earth underneath your feet and the temperament of the people. And a, I wanted a frontier kind of town feel um, because, you know, if I'm a GM and I want to start a campaign, I could use this town as a base of operations for the players should they want. Mm.
0: And it's awesome. very cool. Yeah. The, the way that you've laid out the town and, and uh, in the module as well, it's even if you don't play the adventure itself, just with the the way that that's all been set up, um, you can use it straight out of the box in, in any sort of um, fantasy campaign, or if you are running Terranoth, you can certainly do that as well. So yeah, that's really well done. Thank you.
4: Yeah, I wanted it to, I wanted it to be that if you didn't just want to run Terranoth and you wanted to slap this into your own world of your own making, mm-hmm. you could take this and do that. Um, also. You know, I'm, as a GM, sometimes I'll see things on Drive-Thru RPG that I'll just snag because I really like the list of NPCs. Mm. Um, and I'll use, utilize those in other places in my own campaign just because I really like the way they were written or the way they were described. Mm. So, yeah, it's got a time saver in there if you need it.
0: Absolutely. Because there, there's certainly, uh, when it comes to uh, developing things for the foundry, allowing people to be able to use Bits and pieces out of these adventures um, is is a good plan, I think. Um, Whether it be you know add your madness rules and and things like that that you've done, Um, it it sort of it's not just the adventure that they're purchasing, and I think that's a that's a key thing uh, for people who are looking at putting out stuff up in the boundary. Um, Yeah, yeah. So. Can we just talk about um, the development of, uh, of the module itself? Can you give us a, a little bit of, of the history of Hadra's Shard, um, the adventure? How long did it take to come together? Um, you know, where did the idea sort of stem from? That sort of thing.
4: Wow. The uh, impetus for this was originally um, before Genesis came about, before I even knew Genesis would, Genesis would come about, Um, I, I was writing this adventure originally for a 5e campaign. Um, and for some reason it just didn't, it, I I felt restricted. There's nothing against 5e. I think it's got a place, but Genesis, when I found out that Genesis was out, I went ahead and started writing, uh, the outline for this. Um, I would say this adventure has probably been in the making for at least as far as the flavor and the people it's been in the making for probably about a year, maybe more.
2: Okay. Um,
4: Wow. But I only started like converting it to Genesis and working on it um, in just after Gamer Nation Con in April, uh, when uh, Sam and Tim and everybody um, kind of tapped me and said, "Hey, you know, do you want to do something like this?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I took it real serious um, and wrote. I wound up rewriting the adventure. Almost uh, sixty <laughs> percent of the adventure got rewrote. <laughs>
2: um,
4: uh, so suffice to say the process has been, the idea has been something I've had around for a while, but the, uh, the actual writing was something I just kind of pushed myself to do because there was a deadline. So mm.
0: awesome.
1: Okay. Well, so uh, as you're writing and obviously going through this writing process and stuff, when you re- finally put that cap on it, and this is kind of one of the things we just talked about, um, uh, with Alexis, um, is is the process of play testing? We discussed a lot here, but from a fresh perspective, what did play testing look like for this module? How did you go about play testing it, and uh, what did that process look like for you?
4: Yeah, that's uh, play testing is key, uh, and I know you guys have said this before in the Forge um, multiple times and in um, other podcasts. But I, I really want to say play testing is key. I've play tested this with at least five or six different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave it to a GM cold and he ran it while I sat at the table and watched. Mm. (laughs) Yep. And I took notes. Um, I played completely dumb the entire time. He would occasionally look over at me and I'd just shrug like, (laughs) I don't know what you're doing. I'm I'm and it was a really great process because it told me what he was focusing on and what the other players were focusing on. And every time I ran it, it was it was different, which Mm. is actually really rewarding because uh, it shook out a lot of rules, questions, or things that were unclear. Uh, it um, The GM gave me notes like, hey, this would be really great if I had this in this part of the adventure. And I thought, yeah, that's a really good point. And so I went back and um, massaged it and made some adjustments. Um, and that worked out really well, actually.
0: Very cool. Were, were there any major challenges that, that you think that, would be of benefit to other people who are looking at uh, developing their own their own adventure that they've gone through that playtesting process. Are there any things yeah. that yeah that, that you and, think
1: and of- to, to tack on to that because we we were gonna I mean maybe calling Audible a bit we were gonna hmm. ask you I mean with that I mean general suggestions you have for anyone wanting to write for the Foundry?
4: Yeah, I think. Presentation is just as important as playtest in some ways. Um, I learned a lot. I, f- I learned, first of all, that um, FFG and um, those developers there, their job is not easy um, from a person who worked on it, um, worked on his own adventure for this part. Um, but the flow of your adventure, um, laying out you know, your NPCs in the adventure in places where they would be easily findable and easy referenced, um was really important. Um, having somebody proofread was just key. Um, I can't stress proofreading enough. Um, after you've looked at a adventure over three months over and over and over, you're just gonna miss things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was key. Um, as far as as far as the, the entire process, though, I think, I learned a lot about being open to change uh, as far as my writing style and as far as um, what I could do to find my own kind of rhythm. Um, I'm not sure how helpful that would be to some people. But when you get feedback, the most important thing to do is to really weigh the feedback you get from people Mm -hmm. um, and not take it personally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that was a really – I mean having that kind of mindset – help me chug through it so much faster and make the game so much better. Because like I said, playtesting feedback and GM feedback and proofreader feedback, um, is what makes an adventure liked more generally, um, than just, you know, Hey, here's my idea, you know, hope you like it. So,
1: <laughs> yes. And to all these points, man, when you read through Shard hey, part one, um, I mean, it, all these lessons are clearly there. Your, your layout is on point. Your presentation is on point. And I love how you introduce NPCs. I also love the fact, and, and some other published adventures have done this. I'm, and when I say published adventures, I mean published adventures. Um, not all, <laughs> uh, not all uh, Foundry content does this, but you actually go so far as to make it really easy for me by doing something I love as a GM, which is at the very end of the adventure, you provide summaries on Strange Haven. With, you know, full population and, and you know, key references of all the major NPCs and what they do, mm. um, you do the same thing for threats towards the end of the adventure. So I, I greatly appreciated that.
4: Yeah, thank you. I, that's, again, as a GM who runs, um, <laughs> I think you and I have actually discussed this as a GM who runs. Sometimes after I've run an adventure or read it, I may decide I want to take those adversaries and put them someplace else. <laughs> so it's nice to have them in one collected area mm. that I can reference next to whatever other adventure I'm running. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and and thank you for that. Um, I plan on doing more like that in uh, other parts of uh, the next installments. Very cool. Ooh,
1: well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But mm. as we as we wrap up the discussion of Hedra's Shard, can you whet our appetite? Maybe give us a glimpse of something exciting in the module that we haven't yet talked about.
4: Mm. Well, um, yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to do in this adventure that I, I found really important is I wanted to create something that um, – was not just um, you know, track down or do the thing. I wanted something that would get people involved uh, and thinking in maybe a different way. And one of the fun parts of um, Strange Haven is the actual town itself. Exploring the town is um, <laughs> so, so much fun. In fact, you know, as, as I read through it, it sort of took on a life of its own. Um, but I, I think... The most exciting part is when you, when you go to the town, you're, you discover that the citizens, I mean, this is not a giving anything away within the first few minutes, the citizens are not okay. Mm. And, and so the, the quandary is, why are they not okay? Mm. Um, and it becomes a mystery rather than a, you know, stock and kill and then loot. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, so I wanted something that really drew me in, and so I hope that did it for a lot of people. Plus, you know, um, I got to play around with my um, my love of uh, like small towns and frontier towns and uh, <laughs> alcohol. So, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I can't I can't attest to the first one, but for the latter, yeah, I can attest to that. You really do love alcohol. Uh, <laughs> uh, but at least you're an honest company, so. Uh, <laughs> Very
0: true. So so Darren, basically tell us what's next for you and the Foundry.
4: Um, So for me and the Foundry, obviously parts two and three are um, really on my mind heavy. Parts, part two is actually already in process. So I'm already writing on part two. Oh. Um, part three is already outlined. Oh. Um, I already know how the, the entire series ends and I will be um, working on those as well. Um, but I've also been approached by other great writers like yourselves about some collaborative work for generic Genesis projects that can go in anybody's game, which is pretty exciting. Um, I do really love Terranoth, and the world is so uh, underexplored mm. and under-shown. Um, uh, I really can't wait to, after hadrian Shard, to circle back around and find some other part of the series um, in Terranoth and Minara to see what comes to life there.
1: Mm -hmm. Very good. What a good playground to play in.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, FFG did a great job with um, uh, Realms of Terranoth. It definitely pulled me in. And the artwork is amazing. Yeah,
1: it really is.
4: So I felt a responsibility to do the same thing in my adventure because
1: I was like, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep it on point." Yeah, Indeed. yeah.
0: Look, Darren, just one <laughs> thing in, in passing before we go any further. That um, before we wrap it up, should I say um, the the layout that you've had for your adventure is second to none. As far as I'm concerned, you can basically pick that up and think that it's been produced by FFG. So, um, yeah, hats off to you, sir. Brilliant.
4: Thank you. I, I, I wish I could take all the credit. Um, I had a lot of help from other members of the community. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about InDesign. Um, <laughs> and so that was really important. Um, I've been very um, appreciative of some of the help I've received, um, particularly just want to call out um, Scott Zumwalt, who yep. is a member of the D20 Radio um, group with his uh, Don't Despair podcast, Mm -hmm. Um, who just, you know, gave me what I needed to just like start moving things and massaging them and laying them out. Um, He really um, gave me a lot of tools uh, to do that. And that was super helpful. Um, And then from other members of the community who gave me feedback, um, which was really, really appreciated. So thank you, that layout. Uh, I plan on, you know, sticking with that layout for other templates
2: very cool
1: (laughs) wink wink nudge nudge (laughs) (laughs) indeed darren thank you so much for your time today thank you for telling us about hadris shard uh we really do appreciate it and for all of you listening um you know fantasy is fantasy you know it's darren's favorite uh theme and and it's many of ours for a very good reason it's kind of the theme that started this hobby and if you enjoy fantasy and you enjoy the freedom that the Terranoth setting provides, then Hader's Shard is a fantastic place to dip your quill in that proverbial ink.
0: Indeed. <laughs> so, so, Darren, thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thanks, guys. Not a problem at all. Glad to have you on Thanks, board. For- well, Darren's an amazing, amazing person to interview. And uh, the work that he's done on that, that module is Fantastic.
1: God, it really is. Uh, I, I I absolutely love it. I, I can't wait to see part two and three. Mm. Um, and seriously, guys, if you if you haven't checked out Hadrian hey Shard, it's totally worth it. Um, so go check it out. Absolutely.
0: Go check it out. Absolutely.
1: So, Holy, do we have some uh,
0: perhaps listener quandaries we need to cover? We have a couple. Funny you should mention that. And we'll cover that in Under the Hammer. Under the Hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we will answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role-playing game as it impacts both rules and content creation, and of course, play. Now, this episode, we've got a couple of juicy questions. Chris, would you like to read out our first question?
1: Absolutely. This comes uh, via Facebook from Christian Nicolassen, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Um, who says the following. Let's talk spending advantages on strain recovery. Do you allow this on any skill checks, even out of structured encounters? The question came up in my last session on Terranoth, where my players are on a classic D&D-like dungeon crawl. One player who plays a magic user was very active using perception to check for traps or other kinds of dungeon-delving skill checks, and using any advantages coming up for strain recovery. Would you limit the number of times advantages from skill checks out of structured encounters can be used on strain
0: recovery? That is a really good question and something that comes up quite often and has since the dawn of time. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Look, basically, from from my perspective, I think that it goes down to a bit of an adage that um, GM Huzz used to um, use all the time on the dice pool, which is do you need to actually roll? Um, if you're asking for roles all the time, it's going to bog down play. And that's not what Genesis um, is all about. So you need to be, if if somebody's going, I'd like to make a perception here or make a perception there, you should really be bringing all of the perception into a, a zone or an encounter space that... Whatever the results of the of the perception roll are, and we'll use that as an example because that's what they've uh, that's what um, Christian has really sort of used as his example. Is that you should be rather than going everybody make perception checks or make a perception check here every five foot. That's not what Genesis is about. It really is about okay, you're going into this particular scene, make a perception roll, and that's the only time that they should do that. Link in all of your environmental factors, link in all of your uh, your bad guys' abilities uh, and things like that into the one check. And that's going to limit the number of advantages that basically get used. Chris, what's your thoughts?
1: Well, I agree with you. There is an unspoken problem that it's very, very much a uh, remnants of the D20 mindset, mm. okay, mm-hmm. um, in, ter- in terms of D20 systems, where... You're making them roll for everything. You, you can't do that in the system. It's not designed to do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And people, but that's how we all learned to role play. Many of us mm-hmm. um, who are weaned on, you know, anyone under the age of 40 uh, was, it, you know, may have been weaned at the, at the earliest on second edition, but most likely third edition D&D mm-hmm. um, or under the age of 35, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and <sighs> that's just how we were kind of trained to do it. And as a result, people are rolling way too much when they shouldn't be. So, and, and that, that is a facet of this problem. Like the example you described, Huli, like if, I, if, I'm, if I'm doing a fantasy adventure in Genesis and there's a dungeon crawl, the party is going to make a group perception check, or whoever wants to make it will make a perception check to notice traps. Hmm. That check is going to be the check, the only check to notice that kind of thing pretty much until they get into a fight.
2: <laughs>
1: mm. <laughs> um, th- th- that's pretty much it. Or enter, you know, a brand new level of the dungeon or something mm. like that. Yeah. And that-, that check should represent something macro at a high level. And honestly, this is where the narrative elements really shine. Because at that point, the amount of advantage rolled, or more importantly, the amount of threat <laughs> or even potentially despair rolled, even if they succeed, can lead to, okay, you discovered this trap and that trap and this trap, but not this one, or not that one, or you took some damage from this one, and you can really start to play off of it like that. Yep. So anyway, anyway, the point is, roll less, and this becomes less of a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, the still core question is there. If you are rolling the appropriate number of times, this really doesn't become a problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, But even then... I'm I'm a bit of a hardliner on this, and that's unusual for me in this system because this is a very free system and it's very much yes and okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I don't let roles recover strain from my players outside of combat. Mm. Uh, outside of a structured encounter. I just flat out don't. That that is a structured encounter rule for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the reason I, I, I kind of hold to that is because of a couple things. Three things. <laughs> One, there are rules for recovering strain after an encounter. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Use them. Mm. You don't get to cheat them by using this, you know, spending advantage outside of a structured encounter nonsense. Mm. Two, (laughs) (laughs) um, if they have time enough to make that many rolls, they very well could recover a significant portion of their strain naturally anyway. Right. Um, you know, there's some actual rules around this, but as, as a rough guideline, if my players have a couple hours to rest, I'll give them, you know, back half their strain, if not more, or all of it, okay? Hmm. Um, you know, a, or a few hours, at the very least. The third reason is there are talents <laughs> that uh, now and in the future, because we see them in Star Wars— hmm deal with improving strain recovery at various points. You neuter those talents and those character choices by allowing strain to be recovered that easily and that quickly without an encounter uh, check-generated advantage. Hmm. So I'm kind of a hardliner on it, but that's just my attitude on it.
0: No, that's fair. And look, one last point that I'd like to make with regards to um, spending advantages and, and things like that, something that you should always try to do as a GM when running a game is make sure that you're not doing that as well. So if you've got an NPC that may be in, you know, that they've been in a combat scenario um, and they're doing something with the PCs because they're, they're being interrogated or they're being, um, you know, uh, negotiated with or whatever else don't start using advantages for strain recovery for them as well um only really applies to nemesis level npcs but don't do that as well make sure that you're using those and even in combat don't necessarily be using that um, using it that way as well use it to do exciting things use it to give a description a descriptive reason as to why setbacks exists or why that they're able to give this person an upgrade to their check or whatever else. Make sure that you're playing by your own rules, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, so uh, when you're doing it, the PCs are going to be less likely to be going, I'm just going to spend it on strain, because they're going to know that the, the benchmark has already been set way back when, when you sort of the, uh, the the expectations of the game. And also, you're showing them how you expect it to be done. And that'll become second nature. Yeah. Yeah, I completely
1: agree. Um, also, uh, back to your back to yours and my point around too many skill checks being made. Mm-hmm. Somebody said to me once, and I, 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 I'm struggling to remember who, but it was a great quote. I just don't want to take credit for it because this isn't me. I, somebody said this to me once. Mm. The skill checks in this game are so awesome because they're non-binary, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Then don't use them in binary situations.
0: Very true. That's okay. great wisdom.
1: That, that, that That's the best wisdom on that topic I think I've heard. Mm. If it's, ah, uh, you spotted it or you didn't, and that's the only avenue and it's going to happen 17 times, mm-hmm. no, mm. roll, roll it up. Yep. Roll it up.
0: Yeah. Because also, should it really matter if they do spot it? Is it, is it such a major thing that it's going to slow down play that if they don't spot it? So then you've got to have the scenario where, oh, I don't find the secret door at the end of this dead-end corridor. Um, right, next PC roll. Oh, you didn't make it either. Next PC roll. And it just starts to bog the whole thing down. Instead, try something like, okay, so... Uh, you take a little bit of time, but eventually you find it because that's how you move the story forward, and that's what it should I, be I, all I about.
1: Oh, I know! It, like this isn't this isn't even a problem with Genesis mm. or, or even or even Star Wars. Like I, th- there's there's actual play podcasts on the network that I love to listen to, mm. and my biggest pet peeve, and I cringe every single time, <laughs> uh, is. Especially when it's Dungeons and Dragons, yep, it's it's like, all right, everyone, give me a perception check. Mm. Okay, and everyone rolls, and they're not in combat. It's not an ambush situation. It's like you know, discovering a PC's an NPC's motive, or that he's looking at you squirrely, or something like that. Mm. And everyone rolls, and one player makes it, or two players make it, and the rest don't. And then the GM goes, okay, well, you guys don't see this, but you two. <laughs> You know, you notice, uh, you know, that uh, he looks very sad and wistful as he walks. <laughs> and or or even even describing a, a scene or a setting or, or something that's happening in a dungeon. And it's like, why did you make them roll? Yeah. Like, like, why? What was the I mean, would, would the story have suffered? Would there be a consequence if they hadn't? seen it mm. and if the answer truly is no then just make them see it <laughs> yes.
0: very very true yeah
1: so yeah 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 any anyway, anyway. All right, we're, we're way off topic for this question <laughs> well, yeah
0: but, but ho- um, hopefully Christian g- g- that does <laughs> that does answer the question <laughs> that's yeah. for sure so,
1: so so yeah Chris Christian I, I hope that helps if, if you're looking for a hard line from my perspective, No, I don't allow it at all outside of Structured Encounters. Hmm. And honestly, though, it shouldn't be that big of a problem, as Juli and I have said, because honestly, they shouldn't be rolling that much outside of Structured Encounters for it to matter, even if you decide to allow it and Hmm. do it.
0: Indeed. okay. Right. What do we have next? We got another question? Yeah, we absolutely do. We have a question from Dave Brown uh, via Facebook. And Dave asks, with all the legal wrangling going on, I had a couple of questions about the user agreement. Firstly, if you collaborate on a project with someone or someones, is there a process in place that allows all contributors to get a slice of the proceeds, or does it all go to a single person who then needs a separate agreement with the other collaborators. Similarly, if someone proofreads or edits your work, do they now legally count as a contributor with a claim on some proceeds? Or does that come down to an agreement between the parties themselves? Okay. 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 Couple of, bit of a bit of a disclaimer. We are not lawyers. <laughs> yeah. so, so,
1: so that the answer is, Go talk to a lawyer in your legal jurisdiction. That's the answer. <laughs> um, but but look, I think there's there's a couple things we can talk about yep. from experience and reason here. Absolutely. Um, so first of all. Uh, and Huli, you, you, I know you can speak to this actually quite well. Mm. Um, the foundry itself. Let's just talk about the process of 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 splitting proceeds because that was really the first part of of his question. Mm. Is if if you if you if you have a collaborative project, you want to know is there a process in place that allows all contributors to get a slice of the proceeds, or does it go to a single person who would then need to divide it up in themselves? Um, Drive through RPG actually has a mechanism for this.
0: Mm, sure does. So when you're basically setting it up, you can uh, split it up to a number of accounts that uh, the payments go to. So, for example, if you've got somebody who's done artwork for you and you've uh, reached an agreement with them, uh, which I would always recommend that you get any sort of agreements uh, with people that you don't know and even the people that you do know, always make sure that you get that in writing, uh, whether that be something that you can refer to at a later stage via an email uh, but always try to get in writing first. So, on that, um, uh, what you would do is if you had an agreement where the the artist might get, um, you know, 20% of anything that you make from that rather than a straight upfront fee. Um, and if you've got an artist friend, that may be something that, that you enter into that agreement of. You can set it up so that that person, and they have to set up their account on DriveThruRPG, that person can get. and you set that up so that when the fees come in, FFG get um, their portion, you get the remainder and then that then gets split up. The only thing to to keep in consideration here is that it's of the total amount. So if you basically say, well, this particular person is going to get 20% of anything that I own, remember that's 20% of your 50 that's the only thing that you really need to de- keep in consideration. Um, and obviously, make sure that you don't split up your pie so much that you're not getting any. That's another thing. <laughs> That's an important thing to keep in consideration as well.
1: Well, uh, but, and let's talk about some reality here. Look, mm. um, <clears throat> if you can find an artist, I mean, it would have to be a friend. I don't know of any artists that would agree to do work for free and then just get a share of the profits later. Yeah. Um, uh, not for a venture that you're gonna publish on the foundry. Hmm. Um, that's that that's staggering. And in terms of published material in the industry, that is never that never occurs. None. That does not happen when you're talking about art. Um you you pay for it up front. And frankly, I have never heard of that happening with proofreaders or editors too. Yep. They are almost always if they if they're paid, they are almost always either it's either done for free or they're just paid up front at an appropriate word count rate. That's a sunk cost for your product. Yeah um now again as far as the legal ramifications of listing them as contributors like like doing work on a project doesn't le- i mean it talk with a lawyer it, it, i don't know if it legally counts as a contributor but give a credation where it's due in the Ooh. credits if you have a proofreader that you've paid or not paid because they were good enough to do it for free give them freaking credits in the credit
0: Ooh. page. absolutely for couple give them of- <laughs> for, a cu- for a couple of reasons, especially this applies to playtesters. Yes. Because if you've playtested a document, okay, it's a nice sort of tip of the hat to say that you've, um, you've been involved in that project by having it listed in your book. Not only that, from a marketing perspective, if you've got 10 people who are playtesters and they're all listed, those 10 people are probably going to tell another 10 people about – Look how I've been uh, credited as a playtester. You've just gained, if you've got 10 playtesters and they've, you've just marketed to 100 people without even lifting a finger, other than creating the project itself. So Absolutely. you're going to have that goodwill that's going to come back to you in spades as well, just because you've given them um, that credit. And the same mm-hmm. thing applies to artists. And the same thing applies to, to anyone who's involved in a project. I know that as a um, as a freelancer for FFG, I know that the stuff that I've created, I show heaps of people. And it may be something that they're not interested in. I talk to people at work about it. And that generates a conversation. Um, so, you know, that, it's free advertising to make sure that you're giving credit to people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, in terms of of contribution as uh, in terms of actual contributors, writers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if, uh, it look, let's, let's talk about the industry. Let's talk about the foundry (laughs) and, and and what's likely to occur. Mm. I mean, a a publishing house, they're not going to give freelancers a portion of proceeds. That doesn't happen. They get paid for their word count and that's it. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you if you like if you have and the same way if you have an editor if you have an editor you're going to pay him two cents a word and you'll throw them a the couple hundred bucks to edit your ten thousand word document, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. And that's you know that's just how it's done. Now for the foundry and what we're seeing, things work a little differently. Mm. Um, it's rarely a freelancer style relationship. It's almost always collaborative. It's it's a group of people like we talked about last episode with uh, Studio 404. It's a yeah. group of friends who have entered into business together, they're all working together as equal contributors. Mm -hmm. Um, When that happens in in, in the real world of the Foundry, yeah, I mean, you you can't afford to pay people like freelancers on the hopes that this is going to sell. You kind of all have to come to an agreement that, yeah, we're going to split profits appropriately this way.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. We are not lawyers, but I'm going to give you some freaking recommendations, Dave. (laughs) Here's some recommendations from a non-lawyer. And recommendation number one, Make sure everything is in writing.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Okay. Make sure everything is in writing and it's clearly lined out who gets what percentage of the sales. Period. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number two. (laughs) Make sure that you have record of everyone agreeing to that written document. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yep. Those are are my two recommendations for you. Mm. Now, it's so awesome to build this kind of stuff with your friends and your game group and people you love that are family. And and it's just so wonderful. Do you know what will destroy a friendship or destroy even family relationships Mm. at the drop of a hat?
0: Money. (laughs) Money. It's amazing. Mm. It's like, it's like, it's like,
1: uh, it's like a rock band. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a rock band. The instant, we're, God, we're, we're, we're playing in the garage and we're making music and we're loving it. It's just amazing. And the instant there's a modicum of success, Mm. the entire relationship is instantly tested. And, and will frequently shatter, and thus it is incredibly important to have an understanding and an agreement in place ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's just it's 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 staggeringly important. Um, the, the the other thing I would recommend is, with few exceptions, if we're talking about a piece of intellectual property, mm-hmm. um, it, it there is typically a progenitor. That progenitor in the agreement should retain the rights to that property, regardless of who's worked on it. You, um, trust me. As some, as as we are speaking to you now, as people who have created pieces of intellectual property, mm-hmm. regardless of who you have working with you on it, you need to specify that it's yours and you retain ownership, regardless of the profit sharing that may happen from a particular product. Mm. You, you don't want anyone else you're working with who did not generate the idea to say. Uh, well, okay, no, we're not going to go in that direction, or we're not going to go in this direction, or I want proceeds of future products because of you know I own the IP. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. You need to be extremely extremely clear about this. Mm. And in those settings where you have groups that generate an intellectual property piece together, mm-hmm. you need to be especially more concrete about who has creative control and who retains ownership. Correct. And sometimes it is joint ownership, and you can't get around that. Mm. But it's danger. It's dangerous. Mm so absolutely <laughs> yeah. these, are, these are my these are my pieces of advice yeah um mm. and again we are not lawyers go talk to a lawyer in your area i guess the last point i would make though you're not going to get <laughs> you're not going to get rich doing this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're you're not even going to make a moderate amount of money doing this mm. if you're lucky and you have an incredibly successful product. Hmm. Maybe you'll make a couple hundred bucks. Wouldn't hmm. that be cool? That would be very if, cool. If you get to that 20% that medals, okay? Hmm. <laughs> All right, which is a big freaking if, okay? Hmm. Um, maybe maybe you'll make a couple hundred bucks. That's really cool. Hmm. You need to ask yourself, is haggling over any of that <laughs> worth <laughs> the working relationships you're going to have with these people. That's right. Absolutely. So, something something to consider. If you if you were if you were trying to ask yourself the question of well how do we how do we handle the slice of the profuse and how do we ensure <laughs> that there's this and that. You're going to have a bad time. <laughs> Look you just you're not doing it for the right reason. Just yeah. do it to have fun because even if it blows up and you lose it, who cares? That's right. You, oh my oh my god, I'm out. I I, I, I could have been a (laughs) hundred (laughs) air.
0: I mean, there is a reason why the drive-thru basically has a silver for a hundred copies. You know, it has copper for 50 copies. You know, it's (laughs) not as though that they're like going, well, for silver, you're going to need to sell 10,000 copies. That's not how this works. And if you've got that expectation, you're probably going to be bitterly disappointed um you know people like uh, both keith kappel and and scott um, zumwalt they've they've got really core cool products that so they've put a lot of effort into into marketing and they've only recently gone over to uh, to silver i don't know how far into silver they are now but you know and that happened fairly rapidly but both of them will tell you that though that is not the norm you know, the, these are—I don't know what the percentages are, but they are listed on um, on Drive Through RPG. What the what the percentage of sales actually happen? So make sure that you educate yourself on what their what Drive Through RPG is telling you, so that you're not bitterly disappointed. One last thing that I just want to mention as well. And this is more from, again, uh, as Chris has said, and I've reiterated as well, make sure that you seek some legal advice before you if you really are concerned. But also remember that if you go and seek legal advice, that that's going to cut into your you, how much profit you're going to make. So if you really need to start going into and seeking legal advice where it's costing you money, and there are plenty of services out there that will do it pro bono, um, or will just offer you the 15 minutes for free, is that yeah just just be be overly careful about whether you really want to go down that path or whether it's is this actually worth it um,
1: yeah, yeah I know and, and it's just like look it is so rare to even get to a copper metal in this mm. it's so rare to to even sell 50 copies let's say you sell your supplement for 10 bucks okay mm-hmm. you sell it for 10 bucks okay the takeaway for for, for what is is given to the creators is going to be 50% of that, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you sell 50 copies, you're looking at a cool $250. An hour of legal advice will cost you that. Yep. Is it worth it?
0: (laughs) Here's what it boils down to. Um, But what I was saying before is that two final points. Uh, So first thing, and uh, being the fact that I'm in Australia does sort of put me in a unique position as well, is that, you have to really consider and this is something that Chris and I have found out and you know we'll probably talk about that in a later episode but something to consider is that laws are different between countries what you might think is is law in your country may be different to actually how things work with drive through rpg so keep that in mind as well the aim of the exercise I, I think ultimately is to make sure that you don't make it complex and if it's too complex you probably making it too complex yourself. Make it simple. Don't um, you know, uh don't go too hard into this project. It's supposed to be a bit of fun, um, that you can make a little bit of money off. Um there's some great content out there and you know, look, maybe your next project is gonna be the one that proves us all wrong and it's gonna sell twenty thousand copies. And we'd love to have you on the show if that's the case <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: Yeah, and and, and 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 after I have you on the show, I will fly to where you live just so that you can buy me a lottery ticket. How about that? <laughs> um, if 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 because you are you are beyond lucky. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Very good. Dude, while while we're on this soapbox, I mm. gotta say this because mm. we talked talk briefly about about art and editing. Yes. Okay. Mm. Especially art. We, we've talked about this in the last couple episodes very briefly in, a, in sort of a roundabout way.
2: Hmm.
1: Don't fall into the trap as a young contributor of not understanding how freelancing works. Hmm. And what I mean is, and any, any of you listening to this show who are creatives professionally, especially in the freelance world, there's always some slick turd who tries to either not pay you or tell you that your payment is Experience or
0: exposure. <laughs>
1: you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. And just so you're aware, especially creators that are starting out on this, especially when it comes to art, art's expensive. You probably can't afford very good art. Hmm. And if you go to a good artist and say, Yeah, I have this project I want you to do, he's, Oh, it's great. I'm excited. He says, This is my rates. So, yeah, I can't really afford that. But, you know, uh, th- this is going to be a huge amount of exposure for you. You're going to sound like a one of you're those sorts sound- of people. <laughs> yes. right? You're, 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 you're going to sound douchey, so yep. just avoid sounding like a douche and don't mm. go in with that assumption. Mm. It's totally unreasonable.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, look, when it comes to these sorts of projects as well, and I know that I've spoken um, at length with uh, Scott Zambolt, um, who is a, a real proponent of if your product is done in such a way that it looks good it doesn't necessarily need art the text flavor that you use um the the way that you've uh, place your uh your sidebars uh, the the background that you yeah. use can sometimes yeah. remove the need for any art at all in actual fact it can sometimes detract from the, the project that you're you, you know the product that you're putting forward so, yeah. don't uh, – and I know that there was a, a question that was asked on, on another forum in relation to this exact topic, is how much art is good art? And I think we can probably cover that at a later stage. But, yeah, yeah you don't need art necessarily. Yes, art is evoking and, and it's fantastic. And if you look at what FFG does with, with their products, when it comes to art, it's amazing. But – that's not necessarily what people are expecting, and especially when you're only selling it for a couple of bucks, no one is expecting you know ten thousand dollar pieces of artwork and I tell you what there are some some projects that do have that level of art artistry. Other thing to take into consideration if people are thinking that they have to compete with f f g first question is why would you um the the next thing is that a lot of these, uh, a lot of the, 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 the artwork that they're using, they're using it across multiple platforms. So they can use it in different areas. So they're, they're branching out, not just in the one product. They're, they're going across card games and board games. And they keep that on file that they can use in other things as well, such as their website and whatever else. So they're getting their money's worth. You are only going to be using it for one project. Is it worth your while?
1: Yeah. And like if you have something like the amazing someone like the amazing John Dunn, who we will have on the show, mm. um, <clears throat> you know, with uh, if, you, if you look at uh, he obviously launched with, uh, you know, anthrochimerics. But shortly after he he and others work on the Hope Prep School line. Mm. OK, mm-hmm. there's beautiful art in Hope Prep Yeah a ton. But they paid for that art once. And that same art is used in every Hope Prep product they release for right. every system they release. I think it's it released in like six or eight different systems at this point, including Genesis. Absolutely. Okay? Mm. So you, there, there is that economy of scale that, that matters. But yeah, wow, we're really off topic, but great discussion. <laughs> Indeed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so apologize to, um, uh, apologies, should I say, to, uh, to the people who really like short shows. Um, that's not going to happen today. Um, so, but oh, I, this is this has been a terribly long show, but that's okay. Um. Learn to use your pause button, people. That's all I can say. Um, but that does bring us to the end of the show. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer about developing your own content for Genesis, being a GM or a player, or general questions about the rules themselves, you can send us an email to forgegenesis at t twenty radiocom or you can post your questions to either Facebook or Twitter by searching at Forge Genesis. And of course, if you're lucky, you might get your question like um, Dave and Christian. Uh, You might uh, be lucky enough to get us to read it on the show and answer them. Um, Possibly not as long as we just did, but you know, you never know. Um, Also be sure to join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group, where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate.
1: And don't forget to give us a like as well. All right, reviews are important. So drop us one on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, and of course, Facebook. You can also visit us on our website at ForgeGenesis.com. And finally, you can find us on YouTube by searching at ForgeGenesis.
0: Indeed. And uh, when it comes to YouTube, just be watching that in the next uh, few weeks. I have a little bit of an idea that I've got um, formulating. So, um, yeah, make sure that you subscribe over to there as well. Uh, and <laughs> a bit of foreshadowing um, And uh, be sure to tune in to our next episode Where our topic for The Furnace is going to be a really good one The first in a series of archetype creation Where uh, you're building a new species uh, Or a specialised um, person uh, The process of archetype creation is one of the most fun and enjoyable in Genesis And more than just about anything Can really define your setting
1: that's right. And for this upcoming episode, the the, the first in our archetype series, we're going to review the general guidelines for building an archetype, but then we are really going to spend some time digging into the beefy archetypes. Those archetypes that really focus on brawn. Uh, with a special look into using, modifying, and creating your own brawn-focused special archetype abilities.
0: Indeed. Cannot Wait um so uh but anyway that's a wrap for us thank you all for listening uh for as long as you have um well done gold star from us Uh, and we hope that you can join us next time as we continue to explore the genesis role-playing game i'm gm Hooley. may your triumphs be many and your despairs be few and i'm
1: gm chris wishing you peace love and good game
0: and remember the forge podcast helping you hone your gaming edge the Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the D20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, the social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about The Forge, the Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com.